0: It's the Airline Pilot Guy.
1: Airline Pilot Guy, episode 314.
0: It's the airline
1: pilot guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. Today's episode, an Antonov A-26 transport crash in Syria, an American Airlines captain arrested in Brazil, a passenger strips naked to, well, more news, your feedback in this week's plane tale, the fears of Elizabeth. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. Flight 314 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain and a guy uh, for a major U.S. legacy carrier. And joining me today from across the pond, his English country estate, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. And uh, hi, Steph. Oh, wait a minute. She's not here. Oh, okay. Well, I'll
2: forget that. I love the new music. Every time it comes on, I think I'm on the wrong show.
1: (laughs) Well, I like it, too. Not everyone, I can say, does, but that's okay. They'll get used to it. They'll get used to it. And uh, also joining us from his stately southern mansion. Wow. In Smyrna, Georgia Barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur Pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier Skipper of the APG floating party platform Captain Dana
3: Well, good morning, Jeff Good morning, Nick And uh, good morning, Seth Oh, yeah, no um, <clears throat> Yeah, good morning to everybody in in the chat room Great to be back Another Fantastic episode of the APG. Uh, I guess I'm lying already. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, another uh, another uh, fun afternoon of uh, or wherever you're listening, whether it be morning, afternoon or evening of uh, APG syndrome. So looking forward to it.
1: And from her beautiful lakeside cottage in South Carolina, Dr. Skydiver. Uh, no. As uh, wow. we kind of hinted, uh, Dr. Steph is no, is not long. I was going to say no longer, no
2: longer with us.
3: With <laughs> <Old> Steph, <laughs> no. oh, no.
1: oh, wait, she's not here. We can misbehave. Oh, it is sad. It's a sad situation. So she was at the last minute um, pulled away from her, her duties as uh as the head of HR here at the uh, now I need to really I I need to really confess to you what's going on. Um, there are contract negotiations going on here at the APG, and uh, we've we've hit a rough spot. She's demanding quite a bit more uh, money. Coffee fund, yeah, and uh, yeah. So we're st- we're still trying to work that out. So until
2: yeah, we need some more Patreons, Quick.
1: <laughs> oh, actually. You know what? Really, the sad thing is that uh, I just found out that uh, you know she always seems to spend a lot of time with Miami Rick, and mm-hmm. I heard that they're about to launch their new show.
2: Oh no! Airline oh. pilot
1: people. Airline pilot people. Other people. Yeah.
2: Oh, God, that. A P P. Surely we can get, a get on coffee, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, all kidding aside, uh, she she's. Uh, terribly disappointed that she can't join us today but we shall press on without her and we'll miss her okay let's see so how has everyone 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 been doing this week anything to report have you done anything interesting i know that captain nick you uh, were over here uh, on this side of the pond earlier this week How, how did that go
2: yeah, yeah, it was. It was uh, a quick trip to Newark and back, uh, and that went uh, actually surprisingly well. It was the day after you were saying uh, that you were going to have a lot of snow over there, and I think indeed they did. They had, you know, around a foot, quite localized, uh, but very deep where it happened. The airport uh, had done a marvelous job of uh, clearing up, so by the time I came in the following evening, uh, there were obviously some snow banks around, but it was... Pretty uh, light in comparison uh, with uh, how I imagined it. Uh, so it was no problem getting in and had a very nice layover. Um, and I even managed to get a chance to uh, uh, do a spot on uh, another podcast. You see, I'm, I'm keeping my options open just in case uh, the airline pilot guy sh- show folds after Steph's uh, disappearance. <laughs> wow. Um,
3: Seeing so- how ghostly you're looking right now.
2: Yeah, I know. I'm going to have to draw the wind. Well, I was going to pull the curtain a bit, but I'll finish talking. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I uh, spent the afternoon uh, just before we checked out uh, chat to PT UK, Matt and Carlos. And there was also uh, First Officer Mike was on there. So we had, uh, you know, all English uh, um, compares. Uh, it was quite good. We uh, had a little bit of a Airbus Boeing Banter. Um, uh, the other thing that was interesting uh, going into Newark, of course, was that I'd just done a plane tail, the one we're going to have today, which uh, is centered around Newark, actually. So it was quite interesting flying over um, the area of interest and looking down thinking, wow, you know, if this was uh, 1951, 52, um, this would be uh, quite an interesting place to be. So you'll hear more about that later in the show.
1: I look forward to it. it's a great one another great one so yes we will definitely look forward to that um, Dana anything uh, to uh, update us on as far as what you've been up to no I'm boring oh well you probably were flying this past week right
3: yeah but nothing happened I mean yeah. it was uh, which is good the only thing was uh, I tried to uh, get together I, I guess James in uh, in in uh, Cleveland um, missed my comment on the last show. So, and I also had put it on the uh, YouTube uh, chat window, but he missed it. So, he had uh, something going on when I was there in Cleveland. I tried to get together with him. Other than that, really, a really easy trip, a uh, four day trip with uh, a good captain I had flown with before. So, I'm just kind of getting ready for that upgrade and yeah, just starting to study and think like a captain, trying to think like a captain. I don't know. That's pretty hard. Big shoes to fall, you know, fall in there, Jeff, you know, especially a captain
1: like you. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure your feet yes. are much larger than mine. Yeah. Yeah. My belly is. I don't know about the feet. I so. don't know. I think we have a, uh, we, I'll, I'll girth. yes, girth. A, a run for your money uh, regarding the, the belly.
3: The girth. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm
1: working on that. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show.
3: Okay. But uh, anyways, um, yeah, very, very easy trip and enjoyable. I enjoyed flying with the captain I had, except for one thing. Uh, I was on the northern tier, which is unusual for me. I was up flying through Detroit, and uh, every time we went through Detroit in or went to the outstation, we had to be deiced. So I more, did more deicing in this last four-day trip than I've done all year. So that was the one. That was the one kicker right there. And, and it's it's not a big deal when you, when you you know deice uh, in in the situation we we have both uh, both pilots that are very well experienced. You know, you pull up to the de-ice pad and you already configured. You already know what you're going to do, what's going to be said, how it's going to happen. Um, so there's really not a whole lot of coordination that needs to be done in, in the flight deck as much as, you know, the coordination with the flight deck and outside. So um, we, uh, we nailed it and got it out and got it done and uh, finished the trip on a high note, even though we left Denver. Uh, about 40 minutes late we got totally in on time because of nice winds and short taxi out so all in all it was a really really good trip pretty uh pretty uneventful week
1: all right you know it's so odd sometimes uh i'll go through a winter and have like one maybe two de-icing events for the total winter season and then other years it's like your trip that you just uh Return from Dana, where you it seems like almost every leg you're having to go through the de icing thing.
3: Yeah, and it's it can be challenging. I mean, it's uh, you know, slippery taxiways, and of course, you get anybody that, from a southern airline that is not used to driving in the snow and sleet and the rain and the freezing conditions. Uh, They taxi airplanes that way, too, sometimes, and you look at them and say, "Mm, yeah, you might want to slow down or (laughs) think about the turn that's coming up because it is slippery out there and the airplane's not going to handle like it normally does. So, uh, yeah, so I have that to look forward to when I'm taxiing because I'm, well, grew up in the northern tier state, so it's. Well, I didn't grow up. There's no way, not with my accent. I think you
1: there's, have a tad of geographic superiority syndrome going on here. Yeah, I've seen I've seen bad drivers everywhere in this country. <laughs> so, well,
2: that's true.
3: That's anyway, true.
1: we're not going to get into that. But. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's yeah, see. no
2: one has a monopoly.
1: No, no, that's for sure. Um, it's
2: interesting you mentioned that, uh, Dana, though, that you're, you're familiar and you you get all the procedures out. Um, our company has just completely rewritten all of their manuals, and they've moved the um, de-icing procedures to a completely different position in the manuals. And uh, uh, I, this was the first winner, and I was going – Oh Lord, you've to know, really got to struggle. on I mean, only the now are in a different format, the electronic flight man, manuals, they're uh, they're in a different book and a different position. So it actually makes life quite interesting when you want to get to those and find them quickly, and you're scratching your head going, "Now where the hell did they move those things?"
3: Yeah, just despite the fact that you went through training, I'm sure to re-identify, you know, or be familiar with the procedures. I'm showing sure you, you recurrent training at some point. Because, you know. <laughs> You're
2: joking. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> no, no, no. We just got a notice saying, all the books have changed. <laughs>
1: good luck. And yeah, good it's, luck with that. it's even worse now with the electronic flight uh, bags, terrible. because it used to be with the paper ones, you can kind of, I think it's right around in this area. You know, it just seems yeah. like it was easier to find things uh, yeah, back you in could the, those
2: break the book days. open at about the right spot, yeah. and then you in- instantly know whether you need to go forward or backwards, and then you find them.
1: uh, Now you've got to actually
2: go to the index every time,
1: and uh, and you have to hope that the index is accurate. Not it's not always accurate.
3: Uh, I'm looking for those little, you know, those little color tabs you could put in there, like a little page. I used to have, you know, it all written out with each tab on on it in the books. But now I find exactly what you guys are talking about. I've become far less familiar with um, where things are uh, unless you use them. And of course. You know, for you, Nick, it's a little, little less often, I think, than you know, for Jeff and I, because Jeff and I, like with me, I I flew four day trip. We, you know, I flew the airplane. We were in the airplane twelve legs. You fly a you know three 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 day trip you're or four day trip. You're probably in the airplane twice. So, or you know, are there about. So, it, it for us it becomes kind of more or, or not. That's not what I want to say. It becomes uh, easier for us to. Uh, know where things are versus uh if you fly a lot less thing you know it it becomes more of a challenge for you to stay up with where everything is
2: yeah yeah that's exactly right familiarity once you've found it a few times then it's quite easy to, to get up to and you can even bookmark them if you're sensible electronically bookmark them but uh you know for us uh we use those procedures very rarely
1: I find that those uh, colored tabs—you um, can use those with your EFBs. It's just after a while you can't see the screen. <laughs> oh, so <we're- laughs>
2: you
1: right. just disappear for a
2: second. Oh, but
3: <laughs> but uh, by the time you know we we're up to you know the fourth time on the same trip, you know even though I had the, the page and in in all the procedures out. Uh, I already had the procedure memorized. I went through a double check the checklist. I had already done everything properly, but as we were taxiing into the pad, everything was done. And then even the holdover time based on the third time we were de- de-iced by the same exact uh, type of uh, um, um, de-ice fluid, which is type 4 MP4, uh, type 4 MP4 launch um, in Detroit. I already knew what the holdover time was, one hour and 20 minutes. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, even though I re-referenced it, and, but see, there is some of the threat we as airline pilots face, especially in an air, in an operation like uh, Jeff and I are. It You can become complacent. So what I'm saying is I mitigated that by making sure that I referenced the material, but I also did the procedures because I was
1: so familiar with it. Very good, Dana. You identified the threat and you worked toward a – procedure to mitigate those are the key words threat and threat mitigation
2: yes uh, true, but, very true you passed yeah. your your past yeah, you sim with those two
1: words that's right <laughs> and
3: can tell i studying <laughs> i can may 5th is coming up real quick
1: that's when you uh, start start the schoolhouse yep that's when my last day of vacation was supposed to be so yeah that's oh. when i start the schoolhouse all right well we can't wait to hear how that goes um Let's see. I was on. I mean, I'm serious. Oh, before you I before I float? go to my little segment here, uh, I want to say that if you're watching the video, um, Dana, you're wearing a, a very nice T-shirt. What is that? It's a beautiful airplane on it.
3: You know, all of a sudden, I, I talked about it, I think, two episodes ago now, uh, when I was up there in the Kansas City area and, and uh, was driving uh, on the tarmac and saw my favorite aircraft in the world, which is the L-1011, which is probably on my shirt here. Uh, I'm part of a Facebook group that also um, has uh, some old photographs and, and really has a love affair for the L-10. Um, so then I was on that Facebook group, and then lo and behold, there's the option to buy some T-shirts. So I went ahead and I bought two T-shirts. I bought one like this, which is nondescript, and I liked it because it shows the L1011 in its landing configuration, coming in and in all its beauty. And the other one is a uh, Acme uh, L1011 on a blue shirt, and I may wear that sometime. I just don't. I have to talk to to HR about whether I should be wearing that specific logo. Um, but anyways, uh, that's that's why I bought the shirt. So I love it. It's my favorite
1: aircraft of all time. Excellent. All right. Good taste in aviation T-shirts. Uh, let's thank you. See. I was on a th- three-day trip uh, this week, Monday through Wednesday, with uh, Brent, uh, one of my one of my favorite FOS. You know, Dane, of course, is the most favorite. Was but, just... uh, Brent, Brent oh, okay. is a is a, a distant second place, but. Uh, he and I like to uh, ch- check out, uh, we, we try to, on every layover, hit some kind of a barbecue place. And uh, so our first night we were in um, Jackson, Mississippi, and I asked the van driver best barbecue. Or I did a little bit of research beforehand on Yelp and uh, came up with a, a few potential barbecue joints for us to hit. Asked the uh, van dr- hotel van driver, and he didn't even hesitate. He didn't even pause. He said, pig and pint. And I went, okay. And I looked at that and I'm thinking, well, it's not really that close to the hotel. So when we checked into the hotel downtown, I asked the uh, young lady behind the desk, I said, so barbecue joints. And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, pig and pint. I went, Okay, there we go. Two votes for the pig and pint. So I got the hotel van driver to drive us up there, and it was really good, really good barbecue. So I I highly recommend it if you're in the Jackson, Mississippi area. What Uh, a
2: coincidence. You bumped into two cousins of the owner of the pig and bind. (laughs) The pig and bind? Pig, no, two
1: cousins, two relations to the owner of the pig and pint. Oh, okay. I thought you said big and bind and I went, what the <laughs> heck is that? Pig is yeah. Big and pint. yeah, but actually it was really, really good. Um, uh, we have a, a pig, the pig and the pint um, place on Virginia Avenue near the uh, Atlanta airport, but it's, and I thought maybe they were somehow related, but they're not. Completely different uh, kind of places. The, the pig and pint up in, uh, or over in Jackson, Mississippi is definitely just a, A straight barbecue place, uh, counter service, that kind of thing. So anyway, that was our first night. Second day, we were supposed to go to uh, Raleigh-Durham, just two legs to Raleigh-Durham. In the meantime, all this stuff was happening in the uh, Northeast that uh, Nick, you had mentioned earlier, the snow icing and all that kind of stuff going on up there. And because of that, um, actually, that had nothing to do with it. Let me let me take that back. Uh, that was going on, but uh, it had nothing to do with the fact that we were rerouted on our second day because the weather system that went through Jackson, Mississippi the during our layover that night um, was uh, pretty severe, and the inbound flight, the uh, crew that was making up the flight uh, for our flight the next day, the flight attendants, were delayed because they, they came in, they, tr- they made a couple of approaches, and... Uh, two mists and they diverted to memphis and then they refueled came back i guess they did at least one more miss before they finally uh, were able to get the airplane on the ground the second time around so they were about three hours late and that ended up pushing our uh, departure time the next morning uh, you know two three hours later than scheduled so that messed up our nice easy two-leg day to raleigh durham we were supposed to get in a little bit after noon and uh so instead we went to atlanta Then we did a charlotte turn and then we deadheaded to raleigh durham and didn't get in until after six o'clock so it turned out to be a kind of a short layover and so we really didn't get our barbecue uh fix in except i got well for lunch we did at uh, charlotte they have that brickwood um barbecue uh, dana i don't know if you've ever seen that at the uh at the Charlotte Airport, but uh, I've actually cons- I've consumed that a couple of times. Actually, it was very good. The yeah, it's, the it's very port. good in barbecue. Yeah.
3: So another one really good is Raleigh Durham.
1: Yeah, I think it's the same company, isn't it? The Brickwood. Uh,
3: I think it's. I think so. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah.
1: So, um, now, so the bad news was we ended up flying four, sort of flying three, flying three riding on one. So, four leg day, uh, turned, you know, from a two to a four. But the good news is that the next day we didn't have to get up so darn early and we didn't have to fly three legs. We only flew one leg back to Atlanta the, on Wednesday. So, that turned out to be a nice, easy day and, uh, it was worth it, all said and done. Um, and that's about it. Nothing, nothing spectacular happened. It was relatively good weather for us on the on the trip. You know, some low ceilings of viz. And actually, the next day in Atlanta, that weather system that moved through Jackson was over Atlanta, and uh, that day was a very soggy day in Atlanta. That Tuesday of last week. Uh, but uh, you know, we got to practice our and hone our instrument flying skills. So that's that. Um, Let's see. I have some notes here. Uh, Somebody named Malcolm put this on Slack. And if you're not a member of Slack, you should be, because uh, that's where you can find out about uh, meetups and such. And Malcolm writes, hello, APGers of London. I hope this is a good way to say hello. I'll be spending a day in London on my way back from Europe on Sunday, March 18th sorry for the short notice but if anyone around London would like to get together for a brief meetup that day shoot me a message and again that's uh, Malcolm you'll see that posting in slack you know and while I'm thinking about it why don't I, why don't I pull up my slack app on my machine here and go through and uh, I see a few items listed under meetups and events in fact Adam Spink our ATC specialist, in London put something in here that it might be of interest to some of you over in the UK let me play this while I do that okay go back to slack there's a special screening of the film the dambusters at the royal albert hall in london Let me turn that music down so you can hear me. There we go. And let's see, with a talk beforehand by historian Dan Snow and live music from the Glenn Miller band. Wow. I didn't know that Glenn Miller was still had a band and everything. Wow. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. It must smell a
2: bit by now.
1: (laughs) I, I actually have a few spare tickets to this if anyone wants to go. I would imagine they are shortly to sell out. And so he has some information there, um, a link to the Royal Albert Hall and the tickets. That is a great spot, the uh, Royal Albert Hall. It's a fantastic venue. All right. So that's the uh, Dam Busters March. Hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. Uh, let's see. And continuing on with some more items in Slack, the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, there is oh, I, somebody distinguished that we know uh, was a speaker at the royal aeronautical society not too long ago um trying to recall who that was
2: um, i don't know but uh whoever it is is going to do another one apparently are you yeah in november and uh, these are branch meetings they're, they're different to the big uh, headquarters in london but uh-huh. uh, Because each, uh, the Royal Aeronautical Sankey has branches all over the country, and indeed all over the world. Uh, And each branch uh, organized their own guest speakers. But I've got another spot this time at the Loughborough branch. uh, And what
1: are you going to speak on?
2: Uh, Same again, same talk. Oh, nice. uh, Hopefully I'll get it right this time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you hadn't um, watched slash listened to that, you need to. And we have that, um, what's, uh, not only for the, I think the patrons, the Patreon patrons got early access to it, but I believe we did release that to the general public. And, uh, I'll try to remember to put a link to that in this uh, episode's show notes. So you can listen slash watch, um, captain Nick in all his glory. Well, so to speak, uh, very entertaining, a very interesting talk. Um. But uh, let's see, Adam mentioned Squadron Leader Mike Ling uh, from the RAF will discuss his background in the Royal Air Force, a brief history of the Red Arrows, as well as team constitution and pilot selection. Mike will also cover the Red Arrows Hawk TMK-1 and flying the Red Arrows display, culminating with his highs and lows of his nine seasons on the team that should be interesting and that will be at some point here in the future i don't see exactly but there's a link there again head over to slack and the other thing we were mentioning here um was the uh green big green egg mountain egg fest in north georgia and that will be in may i believe may 18th and 19th and uh I believe, let's see, who was this that was asking about that? Wayne Barter in Slack was asking if, you know, is there any news on that and whether the some of the APG crew and community were going to be uh, attending that. And I, it's on my calendar, so we penciled it in. I'm not sure yet who all will be able to make that, but I hope to. So uh, Mike K. in Northern California said, how about meeting up to attend the Capitol, California Capitol Air Show? In late September, uh, let's see. Brian Huey wants to uh, have a meet up at the Offutt Air Show in uh, in Nebraska, I believe. So, anyway, that's the kind of thing that you will see uh, in the Slack group. So, uh, Hillel at the end of our show will tell you how you can join the Slack group and and be apprised of uh, what's going on in the uh, the APG community. Now. While I was doing all that, I was uh, trying not to be distracted by this communication, this internal communication going on. Dana is uh, trying to indicate something. What's going on, Dana?
3: Yeah, just got a call from crew scheduling for some overtime flying. Oh, very nice. So I <clears throat> I can hardly not go do that. However, if James, you're listening, uh, I'm heading your way. Up to Cleveland, huh? Cleveland. I'll be there uh, at about 4.30 this afternoon and one leg out. One leg to Detroit tomorrow morning. Deadhead back to Atlanta. And that's an well, let's see, two hours and fifty-eight minutes worth of block for seven hours and thirty-two minutes worth of credit. Very nice. I could hardly
1: turn that down. So that is a two day green slip, which uh so what that means, ladies and gentlemen, is that Dana, for that little teensy bit of flying he's gonna be doing, he's gonna get paid twenty one hours worth of pay. I wish it was green. That's uh, right. Oh, okay. I thought you, uh, okay. When you said overtime, I was thinking green. But still, 10 and a half no, extra. hours. extra. I of said pl- extra time. Oh, extra. Okay. Yeah, you did. I was, I I misinterpreted. That's okay. Uh, all uh, right.
3: But it's still, it's a poor man's green screen slip for sure, because I'm working three hours and getting paid for 10 and a oh, half. Oh, yeah.
1: That's definitely, Uh, that's a good one. That's a very good yeah. one.
3: The only bad thing is I have to do the at 137. So if I leave here, I can be on for another 40 minutes or so before I can have okay. to hop down, and take a quick shower. So okay. I'll be around for a little
1: while. Yeah, don't push it. You know, we don't want you to be late.
3: Um, I won't be so. late. And now we can do the in, in the parking lot. Remember that? That's true. So yep. as long as I'm in the parking lot with a few minutes to spare, I'm good. So we're good.
1: Excellent. And usually these last minute things, they, they're not too upset if you're a few minutes late, right?
3: Yeah. It's still an open time for the captain, Jeff.
1: I uh, don't think I'm be able, I'll be able to do that since I leave early tomorrow morning for a four day.
3: Darn it! <laughs> Darn I just dropped it, like Jeff. <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay. Oh well. I Wish I so, could. Wish I could. I'm that thinking. would be fun. All right. So uh, let's see. Going back here to my notes, um, and the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, Carleen Pettit uh, is a uh, aviation uh, author, and uh, she's also a professional commercial airline pilot for. Acme. Uh, She sent something via Twitter, Uh, received a a direct um, message from her. She says, Captain Jeff, I'm working on my PhD and need your help. Would you take my survey and then share it with all the commercial pilots, you know, airline corporate charter. And this, she puts, gives me a link to her website, uh, pettitaviationresearch.com. It's an anonymous survey, and will take ten to fifteen minutes of your time. Thank you. And that was uh, again Carlene Pettit, and uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, but if you want to head over there, if you if you meet the qualifications, I think you have to be at least eighteen uh, years old, and that makes sense because you got to be really a, an airline corporate or a charter pilot. I guess you could be younger, uh, but. Uh, most of us, uh, are more than 18 years old. And so if you're, if you fit that category, uh, please take the time to fill out some of the, uh, the survey for Carleen and her doctoral, um, thesis. That'll be-
2: yeah, I've done that. It didn't take too long. It was hmm. uh, well written. I've had similar comments from uh, quite a few professional pilots who uh, have done it, who uh, say, "Look, it seems to be aimed at just in just the right direction to uh, present a case, uh, perhaps for flying fatigue." So uh, it, I think the onus is on us to try and support this lady, and you uh, killed two birds with one stone, hopefully.
1: All right, uh, let's see. And the other thing is that on, I believe it was the last episode, that we were talking about uh, changes in true airspeed at cruising altitude. And I think that I said in the video uh, 20 knots or 5%. And um in the audio, I actually changed it to uh, the correct answer, which is 10 change. knots. <laughs> and uh, but the the video, though it's still uh, the, the wrong answer. So if you're uh, watching video only, uh, the uh, uh, aim, the era nautical information manual 5.3.3 says that if you change your average true airspeed at cruise, uh, if it varies by five percent or 10 knots, whichever is greater, from what you filed, then you are required to let air traffic control know. So just wanted to make sure, you know, I'm trying to get that bump us up against or above that 50% accuracy. Impossible. I know. Well, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, if you listen to the uh, the video only, then you're thinking, ah, well, they fell below again. But if you're if you listen to the audio, they went spot on, man, that Captain Jeff's a smart guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, he nailed it again. <laughs>
1: Okay. And uh, with that, anything else before we uh, move on to the coffee fund?
2: No, I put out a, a crew log, though. Uh, I was oh, yeah. recounting uh, an old story that... Uh, I'm glad we you mentioned discussing. that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Very... <Discussing. no. laughs>
2: Go ahead. <laughs> we were discussing... Oh, I was listening to someone discuss keeping yourself out of the headlines because in our job, how damaging it can be. Uh, and I know you mentioned it uh, on a previous show, Jeff, as well. And uh, this was my story of how I accidentally got myself in the headlines.
1: Yeah. Uh, so if you're at all... If, if that piques your your interest at all, please uh, consider joining the Coffee Fund, where you can hear these wonderful crew logs. And uh, they're becoming more and more numerous as time goes on. And this last one from uh, Captain Nick is uh, definitely worth joining the Coffee Fund cadre to hear about yeah, his. Yeah, I was,
2: I was lucky to survive, considering how <laughs> junior a captain I was, quite honestly.
1: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, well, without further ado... Johnny,
2: how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love
0: coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community.
1: Coffee and tea and the job and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. A cup. Okay, the Coffee Fund is your way to support the show financially, if you have the financial resources to do so. You can find out about how to become a member by heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And since the last episode, Coffee Fun Classic Method, Reno More, and Jeff Moeller. And the Patreon Method, you can become a patron at Patreon. We have a few new patrons that have joined the show, or the Coffee Fun Cadre. And they are uh, Andrew Neal, Steve King, and Nikki. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Either Nikki or Nikki, N-I-K-I. They've all become producers of the show by joining the patrons at Patreon. Again, more information about how to become part of the Coffee Fund by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com/coffee. Stand by for news. The first item in our news folder, a Jetstar flight is forced to turn around after a airline crew, I think they're talking about ground crew, forgets clipboard in plane engine. A flight traveling from Auckland, New Zealand, to Sydney, Australia was forced to turn around because a ground crew member forgot to remove his clipboard from the plane's right engine. The ground worker was conducting a pre-flight check on the Jetstar Airbus A320 when he placed his clipboard in the plane's engine cowling covering to protect his papers from the rain and wind. Hey, that's a good place to put them. And then forgot to retrieve them. Uh, A new report from the Australian transport transport safety Bureau that investigated the October, I guess, of last year incident explains the worker was preparing the aircraft for service and loading containers when he placed his clipboard in the engine. A dispatcher conducting a walkthrough of the aircraft before takeoff saw the clipboard, but assumed the worker would come back for it, so she did not retrieve it, according to the report. The worker responsible for the clipboard assumed that the dispatcher would have grabbed it. Neither, however, removed the item from the engine before the plane left the stand. The clipboard clip posed a significant threat to aircraft safety, and the foreign object left minor Damage to the plane's fan blade and attrition liner, and uh, the the article continues. Uh, the plane was taxiing down the runway. No, uh, I'm sure it was taxiing down the taxiway. There is a difference, ladies and gentlemen. Runways and taxiways serve two different purposes. Anyway, when ground crew members noticed scraps of paper littering the ground and alerted the flight crew about the metal clipboard clip stuck in the plane engine the captain made the decision to turn the flight around for the safety of the passengers and his too <laughs> anyway so
2: uh, I, i'm assuring that would it cost to uh, have that engine out and repair it and put it all back
1: together again uh, probably nothing expected. couple hundred bucks no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah not yeah.
3: expensive at all
1: no no so no that just goes to show no. you you got to be careful and attention to detail and you can't make assumptions as the dispatcher and ground crew members did assuming that one would the other would do whatever they probably should have done yeah very true Mm -hmm. anything else you want to add
2: no i'm just trying to think of the name of that actor who doesn't understand the difference between a runway and a taxiway um he was in uh uh indiana jones you know the movie Mm mm-hmm Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh yes, Harrison, Harrison Ford. Ford. Harrison Ford, <laughs> yeah. He's 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 at least one person who doesn't know the <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: wow. Come on. Yeah. All right, moving on with that. Um, <laughs> moving on up. Yeah, here we go. Russia's defense ministry says one of its cargo planes crashed in Syria killing 32 people. The defense ministry said the plane did not come under fire, but likely suffered a technical failure. A special commission has been established to investigate the incident. The AN-26 cargo plane crashed about 500 meters from the runway at Hameimim Air Base on March 6th killing everyone on board. According to the ministry, this included 26 passengers and six crew members. Hameimim, located near the coastal city of Latakia, is Russia's main base for carrying out airstrikes in Syria. In support of President Bashar al-Assad. So reports say that uh, again that the or the Russian military uh, was saying that uh, the airplane was not shot down, but some kind of a technical problem brought the uh, airplane down short of the runway, about 1,600 feet short. So. Uh,
2: it's interesting that um, into a lot of these airfields where there is a threat, the military will usually do some form of tactical approach, uh, often where lights are often very steep, often using NVGs. So that, I don't know if that was the case with this. It's just that, generally speaking, there is a much higher risk for just what would be a normal landing when you're landing in, into an airfield that uh, might come under fire. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that was a factor.
1: Yep. That's all the information we have on that right now, and I'm not sure we're going to get much more, to be honest, because uh, it's it's a military operation. It's uh,
2: they, They're going to tell us about as much about that as they are about that bloke. They uh, gas with sarin uh, here in the UK, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> there was another uh, – I didn't include it in the copy that we were looking at here, but uh, there was another uh, reference to an incident of a Russian fighter getting uh, shot down by a missile and – The uh, Russian pilot blew himself up with a grenade uh, to keep from being. (laughs) That's not what caused the crash, but I guess he did not want to be captured. So he blew himself up with a grenade. I'm thinking, wow. Yeah,
2: that's a pretty desperate act. It is. That's bad.
1: Yeah. I would just stay with the airplane and just crash it into the ground. I mean, you know, what are the chances of you surviving that? Good point. Yeah. Anyway,
3: and then if and then if that didn't do you, and then
2: use
1: the grenade. There you go.
2: Plan B. You know, during the uh, the first Gulf War, our pilots were given uh, a, a waistband, a strip of um, gold sovereigns to use to negotiate their freedom. Oh. Very cool. I mean, why you would just take all these gold sovereigns, which were worth a lot of money, and kill the guy anyway? That's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, true. <laughs> I think the idea was you gave them the gold sovereigns with a piece of paper that said, "Here's a down payment on this pilot. If you bring him into British forces, we'll give you a lot
1: more." Yeah, but they, they'd probably more likely than not just go ahead and kill the guy and take the gold yeah i guess you're
2: they wouldn't they wouldn't worry about trying to get the extra
1: payment not always a great idea to rely on the uh on the on the uh what's the uh phrase the generosity the the kindness of strangers Yeah. yeah yeah they're not all good samaritans no especially in that area of the world with all the fighting and everything else yeah well speaking of fighting here's an interesting one an american airlines pilot has been arrested in brazil Accused of assaulting a colleague minutes before a, from, a, fright, a flight from Sao Paulo to Miami was due to take off in the early hours of Thursday morning. The flight, which was immediately canceled, leaving passengers stranded, was scheduled to depart at 1 a.m. from Sao Paulo International Airport in Garuros. Is that the way you say that? Um, the pilot, who has not been named is alleged to have pushed an operations agent and grabbed her around her neck following a disagreement over the alignment of the finger, a tunnel used by passengers that connects the terminal to the plane. So I, are they talking about a jetway here, I guess? Yeah. I've never heard of that referred to as a finger. Yeah, I've heard that before. Okay. Um, an American Airlines pilot was arrested. Uh, we already talked about that. The 59-year-old captain. I'm 59. Uh, Who is believed to have wasn't me, though. (laughs) (laughs) I am American and I am a pilot and I am 59, but I've never been to Brazil as far as anybody knows. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, he's been working for the airline for 32 years, had his passport withheld by police and has been charged under Brazil's penal code, Article 129, with, quote, offending the bodily integrity or health of another If found guilty, the aviator could face a prison sentence of between three months to one year. Passengers reacted angrily to the delay. Yes, I can imagine that their flight being canceled because of a hothead, uh, allegedly. American Airlines said travelers have been put up in hotels, given meal vouchers as the airline tries to rearrange and accommodate them on other flights throughout the day. According to federal police, just before passengers boarded the jet, the co-pilot on flight 930 went to adjust the alignment of the tunnel entrance when the pilot apparently intervened to say the fixture was in the wrong position. The operations agent, aged 41, whose name has not been released, and who has worked for American Airlines for 14 years, allegedly responded that the connection was correctly aligned. Eyewitnesses reported that the pilot went to speak to the airline worker, who inadvertently stepped on his foot. That was in quotes, by the way, inadvertently. The captain allegedly said to the agent, Don't touch me to which the employee uh, reportedly responded that she had not touched him. Witnesses claim that the pilot then pushed the victim and grabbed her by the neck. An aircraft maintenance worker who was on the scene at the time saw the altercation and intervened. Uh, So it goes on to to describe the whole altercation here. But um, first of all, I have a question, and it might be because it's just poorly reported here, but... Do you, Captain Nick, get any training or have any kind of um, authority or whatever to actually drive or readjust the finger or the jetway to the to the airplane? I know that we don't.
2: <laughs> no, I, I I, mean, I have a vague idea how it works, but I'd never dream of uh, trying to take the controls and move it myself, uh, because you're much more likely to dink the airplane than uh, someone who is trained uh, and has done done it frequently. Uh, the, the most I might do is if I'm a bit concerned, say, because on, the, on our Airbus, for example, the angle of attack vanes, uh, are pretty close to the L1 uh, area, so when you get a um, a doorway being attached there, or a uh, a finger being attached there, um, yeah, you're sometimes a bit worried that the edge of it will brush those veins and could damage them. Uh, so the the but what I would do is ask the person who attached it to move it to the correct position if I was worried, but. To a certain extent, you have to rely on their expertise. If they've done it for 14 years and know how to do it properly, you just have to go, okay, well, if that's where it's supposed to be, that's where it's supposed to be.
1: Yeah. Now, if you have some concern, maybe there's like a big gap or, you know, maybe half the door is blocked by part of the finger or jetway, then, you know, you might express that this is not correctly aligned and would you please readjust it? And then that's probably what happened here. And uh, apparently, the uh, the ground worker took umbrage to the complaint by the pilots, and uh, the the little scuffle ensued. Apparently,
3: well, you know, I, I actually used to operate the jetways uh, when I was a gate agent, so um, it can be challenging to do it properly. And you know, obviously, with my previous training on it, I look at it and and um, with with a little bit different eye than a, a typical pilot would, because you know, I used to pull them up. Uh, the aircraft we fly, the Mad Dog, we get the strike, which is very close to the, um, the forward strike, which is very close to the L1 door. Um, and with our aircraft, it doesn't go flush like it does on the Airbus. Like on your aircraft, Nick, the jetway comes flush with the door jam. Ours usually has uh, anywhere from a one to two inch to a four or five inch step down because it can't come flush because of the way the door is and the angle of the jetway. So uh, there are a lot of situations in which uh, you look at the jetway and say, hey, hmm, yeah, that doesn't look so good, not so right. So, you, you know, both of you guys are right. You d- Just be diplomatic about a call the, the gate agent who is properly trained and go ahead and uh, get it adjusted. This, I think, is an extreme circumstance. I think there was some other things in play here maybe.
1: Yeah, I I think so. Oh, I have a question for you, Dana, regarding um, driving the jetway. Mm-hmm. Did in your training, if you and I'm sure you did receive training on how to do this, did anybody mention there's like a little indicator that shows the your the jetway wheels and like a little pointer? Did anybody ever say, "Hey, you know, if you just look at this indicator, you can see where your wheels are and you can basically drive the jetway to the door, you know, with this" Indicator giving you good information. I the reason why I ask is because I see so many times gate agents struggling to drive the jetway into position, and I'm watching the wheels on the ground, and they're just like going around in circles. And and it, the person driving the jetway never seems to look down at the indicator to see what where the where the wheels are and where they're pointed.
3: Well, the very long answer to that question is uh, the short answer to that question is yes. Uh, when I was trained. And uh, this is going back a very long time ago. Um, the answer is we were trained to look down at the indicator to figure out where the jetway was going. Uh, a lot of times when you're looking at the uh, the agents that are doing uh, that without looking are, are usually looking with experienced eyes. In other words, understanding with the whole picture is kind of like w- what we do. We have a scan. And you may see them looking up because they're worried about hitting the aircraft, but they also, in their scan, are looking at that indicator. So, it, but it comes down to you know, do you always look at your speedometer? You don't. You know, you're driving along, so people may or may not look at it all the time. It's there. And these new, more modern uh, jetways uh, have much better indicators than what I was dealing with, which was basically a gyro uh, indicator. Of the the, the most jetways I see are digital, but, you know, then again, the jetways can be very temperamental. Uh, they don't work perfectly, and a lot of times when you're moving the uh, wheels, they don't move in conjunction with where, where you're expecting them to. So that's, that's the reason why you'll see them a lot of times rocking back and forth and trying to get them to nurse it into the position that they need it to get it to move forward. Okay. And on so, that note, I'm sorry, your, guys. I, I have oh, got yeah. to go. Okay, get out of here. Nice to I'm see everyone. Right. Anyway. Thank you. Good, good CAPG chat room, and we'll talk about it next week.
1: Have Later a good flight.
3: Thank you. Fly safely. I'll say hello to James for
1: everybody. By the way. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm going to see James excellent. this evening for dinner. Sweet. Make sure you all take right. your phone and record a little something. I will. I'll bring the whole kitten caboodle with me. Oh, nice.
3: Actually, I'm wondering if I couldn't join you via my cell phone for a little bit while I'm going to
1: work using my microphone. Oh, uh, you can. You can try. All right. See you a bit. All right. Okay. Of course, we haven't right. actually
2: talked about the uh, the elephant in the room, which is what the hell was the captain doing uh, actually physically assaulting someone regardless exactly.
1: of the Exactly. That, that was where I was going to jump next.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Go
1: ahead, Captain
2: Nick. Yeah, because uh, and we we like to think that we are the ones that stay calm and in a situation of stress and can step back and, uh, um, you know, look at things almost in a detached point of view. You know, this could uh, this could escalate. Uh, I'm not going to go here. Let's get someone else to deal with this. Let's get this person superior or let's get the traffic agent or uh, and put them in between you and the conflict uh, so that uh, you don't end up uh, being in the position where you have to lo- do so much, you lose your temper. So that that worries me for a start. And the other thing, of course, you never, ever, ever do this sort of thing when you're in a foreign country. The laws in foreign countries and the chances of you being arrested and thrown in jail, in particularly in some countries and South America, um, the Far East, uh, Africa are the sort of countries that I'm. Thinking of are the ones where the last thing you want to do is to put yourself in the position where you could be arrested. Because once that happens, you know you're in a legal system now and of a foreign country, and all hell could happen. You know everything could. You could be absolutely dreadful for your career
1: and yeah. you personally. Yes, especially if you're in South China. No. Well, um, uh, yeah, lots of these places.
2: <laughs> Quite honestly, <laughs>
1: that was just a, a little reference to the uh, uh, the uh, crew log. Uh, that you, uh, oh, that one, that yes, yeah, like I was flying home to England, yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. You're so right. Uh, well, first of all, regardless of where you are in the world, uh, you know, we should be able to maintain our composure, even if things go south rapidly, and by south, I mean bad. Um, uh, now, I guess it depends a lot on your personality, too, because I am just not that kind of a person. Even if I'm extremely upset, I'm, I'm not the kind that would jump in and, you know, physically uh, attack somebody uh, unless I was being attacked. Uh, but uh, I know that there are a lot of us out there who would. But still, you know, you you have to be able to maintain your composure um, when you are confronted with something that is very frustrating. And so you made a very good point there, Captain. And then the other very salient point is that if you're in another country, you know, <laughs> you gotta be very, very careful. I mean, he, ass- he assaulted a Brazilian national, uh, you know, in their country. And yep. he is not, a- as far as we know, a-, a-, a citizen of Brazil. So, you know, that's, yeah, you just got to uh, keep your head cool. Right. Uh,
2: that's exactly right. And uh, because, you know, you it- know, I won't say that uh, this particular country in Brazil's uh, legal system is biased. It almost certainly isn't. I'm sure it's a fine and upstanding country. But there are countries you can go to where, uh, because you're a foreigner and you've uh, perhaps had an altercation with a local, you're going to be in the wrong regardless of how correct you behaved or how well you behaved. Um, So, In which case, you're in a hiding to nothing. So the answer is just avoid it. Swallow your pride Uh, and just avoid it don't go there
1: well said all right moving on uh, a quick update on the crash of the iranian uh, azaman atr 72 on march 8th 2018 the cao iran's civil aviation authority reported that the recorders have been successfully read out in france and the data has been handed to iran's Accident investigation team who will now analyze the data and prepare a, rep- a report uh, in due time. So hopefully we'll learn something about that. What looks to be a controlled flight into terrain incident in uh, the mountainous terrain of Iran.
2: I wonder how forthcoming the Iranians will be.
1: I mean, I don't know. That. Yeah, that will be interesting to see because yeah. some countries, you know, you're not going to get anything. No, no. Um,
2: Whereas we're used to sharing, our, whether it's our fault, the manufacturer's fault, or, um, you know, whoever's, we're used to sharing our crash uh, reports all over the world. Uh, it's, you know, just a shame when other countries
1: don't. Yeah. It is a shame. Uh, next item here. Well, this is something I need to play. <coughs> uh, hang Disgusting. on. Disgusting. Uh, all right. Um... Yes, the bad boys theme. I guess I could have played that for the American Airlines pilot as well. <laughs> yeah, a few of these. All right, let me uh, fade that one out. And um, this item here, Bangladesh authorities arrested a passenger who reportedly stripped naked and watched pornography on his computer before attacking an airline crew member on a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Dhaka, Bangladesh, Saturday night. Shortly after takeoff, the 20-year-old university student, who was flying back home on the Malindo Air flight, began to exhibit disturbing behavior. At about 10,000 feet, the man took off all his clothes, I guess, was that That must be the uh, the standard 10,000 feet, you're, now you have a Wi-Fi signal. <laughs> I
2: guess, melts off, okay, I'll take my trousers down then. Yeah. <laughs>
1: the man took off all his clothes and started watching porn- pornography on his laptop, according to the New Straight Times. An airline crew member requested that the man put his clothes back on, to which he complied. Uh, the cabin crew approached him and politely asked him to put his clothes on. Another passenger on the plane said, "Soon after that, the man went to the restroom and tried to hug a female crew member. He complied with their request, and uh, of course, we're, we're going to restate what we just said right there. Why do they keep doing that in these articles?
2: <laughs> just just to screw you over, Jeff.
1: Yeah, it's like <laughs> they keep repeating everything. Anyway, uh, the man. Tr- let's see. So uh, the man tried to hug another female crew member later." on in the flight but became aggressive and attacked the head cabin crew member after attempts were made to calm him down with the help of the other passengers crew members were able to restrain the man by tying a piece of cloth around his hands and the passengers seated behind the man were all relocated throughout the cabin for the duration of the three hour and 45 minute flight an airline spokesman released a statement confirming the incident Uh, And the statement was the crew on board has followed the standard operating procedure in restraining the passenger from causing further disruption aboard the flight. The disruptive passenger was accompanied by a DACA security team upon arrival and has been put to jail by the authorities there. So I wonder what
2: subject he was studying university.
1: (laughs) I'm not sure, (laughs) but apparently not quite as interesting as what he was trying to study aboard the airplane. No. I mean, where the hell did he think he was? I don't know. And the other
2: thing is someone's got to sit on that seat on the next sector.
1: (laughs) Oh, let's not even think about that. Yeah. I You know, obviously this person is um, a little mentally disturbed, perhaps. I mean, who in their right mind would think, you know, I need to get a little bit more comfortable here and, and watch my latest episode of whatever he's watching exactly, and just take off all my clothes. Oh, okay. That's not now, a good could idea. Could this
2: be an ambient incident? I don't know. I hear a mm. lot about
1: this and from cabin crew, mainly American cabin crew. I, don't know. I hadn't considered that, but that I wonder if that has something to do with it. You know, yeah. maybe a few drinks and an ambient and. Yeah, Cause people seem to have some bizarre behavior following uh, the use of mm-hmm. that particular, what is it? A sleeping pill or something? Mm-hmm. It's a very, very powerful sleeping pill. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always remember every time we talk about an ambient and in-flight experience, um, <laughs> our uh, uh, passenger Brian, uh, the uh, uh, airplane geeks associate or assistant producer, um, uh, mentioned um, many episodes ago, uh, a couple of years back, he uh, uh, sent in uh, some feedback regarding his experience on a flight to uh, somewhere that was a very long flight somewhere to Asia, I believe. And the fact that he took, he had several items to drink and then he also took an Ambien to help him sleep. And uh, as he was getting off the flight, basically uh, getting a lot of winks and smiles from the flight attendant crew. And uh, he learned later on, I guess that uh, he had exhibited unusual behavior. (laughs) So he didn't go into a lot of detail exactly what happened there, but. Yes, if you ever see Brian, we, you can ask him. We want it. the details.
2: Exactly right now. Uh, Neville Bounds
1: is suggesting he was watching Ron Jeremy's Greatest Hits on his computer. <laughs> the latest episode of Ron Jeremy's <laughs> Greatest Hits. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nev. As always. Ah, and it always seems to be Nev that uh, throws in uh, RJ's uh, name, right? Yeah. Do you think he gets a um, a commission when he does? I that? I don't know. A free access. And then finally, uh, another uh, badly behaving passenger incident. Uh, Let's see. Let's take a listen here.
0: Scare in the air, that's for sure. According to other passengers, the middle-aged woman who appeared to be flying with someone acted strangely from the moment she got on the plane and took a seat in first class. She had boarded United Flight 5449, operated by SkyWest, leaving San Francisco, headed to Boise, Idaho. And fellow passenger Scott Smith from California told the Idaho statesman, quote, she wasn't acting right or normal from the very beginning. I read it as one of them is trying to get over the fear of flying. Then this happened. God. I am gone, I am gone, I am gone, I am gone, I am God. As the woman claimed to be God, tried to open the plane door in flight and also reportedly said, quote, God has all the data. I don't have any data. We landed in Boise 15 minutes ago for three years. Other passengers, not surprisingly, moved in and restrained her, eventually using zip ties on her legs. The plane was met by police in Boise and the woman taken into custody. No charges filed at this point, and the woman is undergoing a medical evaluation with the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. Passengers, by the way, say everyone, bar the ranting woman, of course, remained calm throughout the bizarre incident. And in case you're wondering, Sandra, experts say it's pretty much impossible for anyone to actually open an airplane cabin door while it's in flight, although I'm not sure I'd want to take the chance with someone claiming they're God. I think zip ties were probably the right way to go in this incident.
1: So, um, no, you know, at first I heard when she was saying, I am God, uh, that perhaps this was the audio from the laptop of the previous guy (laughs) that stripped down. But no, she was saying, I am God and uh, was obviously (laughs) delusional. And again, here we go. Another passenger uh, trying to open the doors. Uh, on board an airplane. But as we all know, a pressurized airplane, you cannot open the door uh, no, no matter how hard you try, but still it can be disconcerting for other passengers to see that.
2: Well, yeah, and I have had someone come out of their seat and try to open the doors during the takeoff run. And that is a time when, of course, the aircraft is not pressurized. And On your it would point. be Yeah. And it would be possible to uh, open the doors. So, luckily, um, she was restrained by the cabin crew who sit by the doors. So, um, but, you know, that was, that, that could have been very nasty if uh, she'd succeeded at that moment in flight. So, I think anyone who's got funny ideas about that, uh, you know, they've got to be tackled. Yeah. Um, what happens if she was God, though, Jeff?
1: I don't know. But according to the Boise Police Department spokesperson, the woman is currently in the custody of the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. Oh, well, I guess she, perhaps she's not them. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, and I thought that was a pretty good piece of reporting there. They actually did mention the fact that, uh, you know, you really can't open the door. You know, and the, the interesting thing is uh, you have told us that before, uh, Captain Nick, that mm. you guys don't pressure. You know, you don't have the air conditioning packs activated when you're taking off. No,
2: we, we don't. Yeah.
1: yeah. So we uh, as, uh, in the airplane that I fly, it's a normal procedure for us to have um, the uh, air, cra- uh, air conditioning packs on in almost any ca- every case unless we need the extra performance. And uh, the only case. On the uh, Mad Dog at Acme, that we ever really turn off the packs for takeoff is uh, in the summertime and it's hot in uh, on a short runway like LaGuardia, where you need that extra performance uh, to get off the uh, the runway. But most of that, I said, ninety-nine percent of the time or or more, we always have the packs on, so we do have a, a low level of uh, pressure differential in the uh, cabin as we're rolling down the runway. So.
2: Yeah, that that would obviously make things uh, harder to get the doors open. I don't know why uh, we do it with the packs off. We have been through the iteration of packs on, packs off, huh. a few times during my career, and uh, the engineers uh, or and uh, Airbus sometimes seem to think it's a good idea, and then you get a fault with the system now because you're generally um, uh, activating systems uh, perhaps more often than they would normally. Other airlines do different SOPs as well. So I don't know. It's it's just a thing that Acme Red does.
1: Variety of the spice of life. Mm, Yes, why not? Yeah. All right. And now, time for the best part of the show, which is all of your great feedback. Captain, incoming message. So the first item in the feedback folder, Captain Nick is uh from joe and he writes i'm currently a turnaround coordinator at london luton airport i've just landed a job as cabin crew with a large low-cost airline out of luton i start my training in april any advice on the training and eventually going from the cabin to the flight deck
2: Uh, well there's a door uh you just (laughs) usually you knock on the door or you ring a doorbell and if you're okay, they let you in there. So that's not hard,
1: Joe. Well, do you, so you don't really need any training on that then?
2: Well, you do need a little bit. You need to know how to open a door. Uh, <laughs> some doors are different. You know, some doors swing towards you. Some doors swing uh, away. And you know, it can get quite complicated.
1: Good point. Um, good point.
2: Uh, I, I wish Dana was here because, uh, you know, yeah. he's done so many of these previous roles and worked his way up to uh, being a member of the flight deck crew. So he would be in in an ideal position, whereas you and I uh, took the (laughs) slightly different route of becoming uh, uh, top guns and then uh, eased our way in from the military world. Mm -hmm. So I I wish I knew more about this. Uh, I'm sure that. Uh, There is a path, a well-trodden path uh, from being both cabin crew and uh, TCOs to get uh, into an application for flight deck. I'm not quite sure if the airline, uh, which you mentioned, and I would have to guess as to which one it was, um, have a uh, a cadet training scheme. Uh, There may be an internal application system you can do for that. But um, uh, the only advice I can offer is that, You do the same thing that anyone would if they were trying to join an airline um, as a member of the flight crew. Uh, You know, you you make your applications to this cadet scheme, uh, you speak to other. Um, guys and girls who have recently gone through it and get advice as to what the interviews and the assessment is like, uh, there's probably something online about that as well because uh, most people seem to generate information pages on it, blogs or whatever, uh, and track their progress, and you can follow that. So uh, your best, you know, starting with that. And if you're already in the airline, speak to someone uh, on the aircraft who looks like they've recently... Made that transition, and ask them how they did it, uh, and get it from the horse's mouth. But getting it from me, a sixty-three-year-old guy who didn't even come that um, path, is probably not going to be the best advice you're going to get.
1: Right. Well, I knew you know I know that we have folks listening to the show who uh, were at one time cabin crew members and have made that transition. And you, as you mentioned, one of our crew members, Dana has done it um let's see Stephen ivy you know the guy was flying uh with in his mooney who is now working for a survey company also uh, did many different jobs at the regional carrier uh, for which he worked uh, and including cabin crew member uh, and he is working now toward building time and becoming a cockpit crew member so um, if you're out there listening and you have some advice for joe please Do send it in so we can give him some good information. And then finally, Neville in the chat room, our live show, by the way, if you are listening to the audio only, which most of you are, uh, if you ever get a chance and you do follow us on Twitter and Facebook uh, and you happen to be at the right place at the right time and can join us while we record this live, uh, you really should because... Uh, being part of this chat room is a uh, is a blast, and uh, Nev uh, Neville Bounds in the chat room says that his advice for Joe would be to get out of Luton at the earliest possible opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Not really sure that's very helpful, no. uh, Nev. But thank you. Go. Yeah.
2: Um, What I would say, though, uh, is exactly what Jeff uh, has said. Uh, Get into the community uh, of the APG on uh, social media, uh, Facebook or Twitter, or better still, Slack. Uh, and just pose the question uh, you're answering, uh, you're asking. Sorry, and I'm pretty sure someone out there who uh, listens to us will uh, have some information for you, or if not, we'll be able to put you in touch with someone. Uh, this is just networking in its most basic sense, and I'm sure you'll get the information
1: you need eventually. Absolutely. Let's move on to Zach, number five. Hey, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, First Officer Dana, and Captain Nick. Longtime loyal listener, Zach, here from the east coast of Canada. This isn't my very first, but first in quite some time, feedback. When waiting to take off on WestJet Flight 1229 from Orlando, Florida to Toronto, Ontario, I took your advice and pointed out an odd substance on the wing of the plane to one of the crew members. They thanked me, and shortly after... The first officer came all the way back to row 17 to pay me a visit. I pointed out what looked to be a hydraulic fluid on the flap. He took a look and kindly informed me that that was residual de-icing fluid from an earlier flight. Seemed odd to me, but I only have one hour in a 172, so I trusted the professionals and moved on with my flight. I wish the rest of the traveling experience with this particular airline was as pleasant as the crew on this flight, but the rest was beyond the crew's control. We waited over an hour in Orlando because one passenger opted to deplane last minute, which resulted in an hour-long search of the bottom of the plane looking for their luggage. This frustrated the passengers around me. I explained to them how this was normal and to not let the plane or it was this was normal to not let the plane depart with the luggage of a non-present passenger for safety reasons at least i think this is the case they had four bags who travels with four bags (laughs) anyway the main reason for my email was that i had noticed something on this aircraft that i'd never seen before and i fly quite often i can only assume it was hail damage the wing was riddled with small dents, all of which seemed to be circled in yellow with numbers beside them. A lot of the numbers were the same. Am I correct? Is this hail damage? Is this something you guys experience often? What do these numbers represent, and do these dents affect the performance of the aircraft? I attached photos of the dents and the mysterious de-icing fluid for you guys to have a look at. Let me know your thoughts. Cheers, Zach Walker. And so uh, Captain Nick and I now are looking at the uh, included photographs. You know what I think they are, Jeff?
2: What? There's only one tool an engineer gets given, and that's a hammer. A baldine hammer. Exactly right. And the harder the job, the bigger the hammer.
1: So it looks like this guy was fixing the spoilers. What do you reckon? <laughs> that's, yes, that's just kind of an unusual way to fix uh the spoilers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These are spoiler panels, and they are definitely um little indentations uh or dings in the uh and I th- I think Zach's right. I think that this does appear perhaps yeah. to be uh, hail damage. It could well be. Uh, And just thinking about it, if he were at
2: the spoilers up when he was going through a bit of a hailstorm, uh, Mm -hmm. they would strike just the spoiler panels and not the wing in front of it, which is why I think he was probably going or trying to get out of a, a bit of a hailstorm there with his spoilers up. Or perhaps rolling the airplane, one or the other to turn out of it, and that's where all these dinks came from. And uh, I think you're quite right. Uh, um, that's exactly what it is. Because they've been circled and numbered, they've been uh, examined by the uh, engineers. It'll be on the, uh, the the CDA. I don't know uh, if you have the similar book. I'm trying to think for a second what the CDA is. Um, Uh, first officer Mike's in the uh, chat room he'll remind me but it's the book we look to uh, whenever we have a bit missing or a bit damaged on the aircraft uh, and uh, uh, it authorizes us to go or not go so the the engineers will have looked at these they'll have circled them so they know that each one has been examined they've given it a number and it'll have an exact dimension and depth and a level of damage associated with it uh, in the manuals and uh, the manufacturer and the airline will have assessed them and decided that they can be worked, uh, you can fly with that. Um, and, uh, you know, they, so it's acceptable. They may well have uh, given a time limit on how long before they have those panels have to be replaced. But I suspect, uh, you know, they probably um, got quite a while before something like that uh, needs to be
1: fixed. Yeah, we call it the CDL. Um, we have a couple of different uh, maintenance manuals to uh, re- for, to refer to, um, and one of them is the minimum equipment list, the MEL, and the other one is the CDL, and I'm trying to remember what that stands for too. Um, Something
2: deviation list? Yes, um,
1: I'm pulling it up on my EFB as we speak, see if I can... Uh, what's EFB stand for? Uh, electronic flight <laughs> bag. I know. I know that. Good job. There's, you know, there are just way too many acronyms in aviation. Oh, if you ask me, yeah. uh, and it's hard for me to keep up with all of them, especially with a an aging brain. Uh, let's see manuals, and uh, let's see. I'm going to dig deeper. CDL is, in the and of course they top. list. Um, while yep. you're doing
2: that, I'll talk about this fluid, which I can see on the second okay. picture, which to me looks like a splash of dirty water. Um, so that I would say that's uh, it doesn't even look coloured enough to be uh, um, to be deicing fluid, uh, and it doesn't look gelatinous uh, enough. It looks like it's just dribbles of dirty water, but um, and it doesn't look very highly coloured because that's the usual thing if uh, uh, if you've got uh, hydraulic fluid it's quite usually bright colors so um yeah
1: usually green the, yeah it's usually green um sometimes more clear um this yeah, as I, you said l- looks. Spencer. <laughs> excuse me <laughs> I, think, I think dana's trying to rejoin oh he's mic'd
2: himself.
1: <laughs> okay he muted himself yeah. um that was an interesting. What was that from his car or something? I think it was. That yes, interesting. I'm connecting you two. <laughs> anyway, uh, the configuration deviation ah, list. There you go. I mean, that's a stupid name for it. It is. But that's yeah. why we just say CDL. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Bo. Beau. Um, Bo's got it as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I I'm not sure that. That was de icing fluid. It may have been a little bit of hydraulic fluid leakage, perhaps maybe even grease and a mixture of, you know, water, uh, rainwater and grease or whatever. But it's not unusual. I mean, I'm looking at these photos, Zach, and I mean, there is nothing here that would ever really concern me at all. Um, But I mean, the nice thing is, and the thing that really impresses me uh, by or about Zach's feedback is the fact that he expressed concern about something and they didn't completely just blow him off and say, uh, oh, what the heck do you know? Uh, the, uh, crew member actually came back and, and took a look. And, uh, I think that, uh, that goes a long way to, uh, you know, kind of build trust amongst passengers and, in actually taking them serious, uh, yeah, absolutely regarding this kind of thing. And I, and this is a good time for me to relate a story that, um, I've related uh, a few times before on the show over the years. Back when I was a uh, first officer on the 727, so this was back in the early 90s. Uh, we were flying out of Nassau, Bahamas, and that was before we had. Well, it doesn't matter, but we before we even had jetways back there were just uh, air stairs and such. 1890s. I loved it. Yeah, it was uh, the, yeah the 1890s before the Wright brothers. Flew the uh, right flyer. (laughs) Um, They they didn't use a jetway either. (laughs) No, they didn't. They had no idea what that was uh, or what a jet was. Uh, Anyway, uh, so we were taxiing out and uh, we we hear a ding, you know, a chime from the flight attendant and pick up and say, yeah, what can we do for you? And she said, well, there's a passenger back here and he's quite concerned about something. And he says that something is not right back here. Uh, after the wing, you know, and and sitting back toward the tail of the airplane. And he says, something is just, you know, like sticking up that's not supposed to be sticking up. And we're thinking, he's probably looking at something on the wing. You know, the 727 wing, you look at it, and there are all kinds of things sticking out, in, up, all over the place. And we probably... Yeah, that was a wing designed by committee. (laughs) It was uh, an amazing thing. Anyway, so fortunately, the captain, and we all kind of, you know, lot thought, uh, well, there's nothing, this is nothing. And we looked at all our lights and nothing was showing, you know, uh, a skew. And, uh, the captain fortunately said, Hey Joe, or whatever the first officer, I mean, the, uh, second officer's name was, could you go back and, uh, check this out just to kind of, you know, make this person feel at ease. And so, uh, he did. And then all of a sudden we re- received another chime and it was the flight engineer uh, in the back of the airplane saying hey guys um are you sure there isn't a light showing that the cargo door back here is open and we did a press to test and everything checked normally and uh, he said yeah because the aft cargo door is wide open and on the 727 there was this when you open up the cargo door you know, if you're sitting in a seat looking out the window, you're you're probably not going to see the cargo door open. But on the cargo door itself, it has a uh, this arm that sticks vertically up for, I guess, for the purpose uh, of something like this happening, where you see something sticking up that shouldn't be sticking up you know, a few feet out from the fuselage of the aircraft and in plain view from, you know, the window. And uh, so we thought, hmm. Good thing we didn't blow him off because this would have been a big problem for us because, you know, at the very least, you know, cargo or, you know, bags would have been strewn all over the place uh, if we had taken off like that. Uh, Worst case scenario, uh, one or more of those bags could have been ingested by the number three engine and could have very well lost that engine. So it could have been a bad, a bad thing if we hadn't, you know investigated this a person's real concern
2: problem isn't it jeff because not only was the door left open the warning light that showed it was also faulty so yeah
1: you're going the old swiss oh, cheese understand. right absolutely the, holes in the swiss cheese so luckily we plugged one of those slices of swiss cheese was was uh out of position and blocked that hole so they didn't align and uh, that was you know the fact that we the captain you know made the proper decision so why don't you go back there and take a look and so i always remember that anytime From that point on, when somebody would have a concern about something and I would very likely just my reaction would be, oh, you know, like, what does this person know? Uh, And don't worry about it. It's fine. Uh, Now, I always think of this incident on the uh, 727 in Nassau. And I think, no, we should really check that out because it actually may be something wrong. So kudos to this crew on your flight from Orlando to Toronto, Uh, Zach. Yeah, I agree. All right.
2: I mean, I've heard of crews, uh, uh, flight deck crews that will even uh, dismiss a cabin crew member who, uh, you know, comes up with a possible problem saying, oh, what the hell do they know? And I'm going, oh, actually, old sport,
1: many of them know an awful lot. So, yeah. The other thing uh, that I've I just recently experienced um, regarding cabin crew was we were having a discussion about something. In fact, I may have related this, this uh, 727 incident with him, and I'm not sure how we got on that subject, but uh, a couple of the flight attendants said, oh, you know, we we usually don't let you guys know if somebody has a concern about something. <laughs> uh, really? Oh, uh, well, maybe. Uh, and I'm glad I kind of, you know, told the story to them because now in the future, they may think, oh, I yeah. should probably say something to the guys up there or the gals Absolutely. that uh, something's wrong or somebody thinks that something's wrong. Anyway. There we go. Thanks, Zach, for that feedback. Uh, moving on. First Officer Mike. Is F.O. Mike in the chat room with us live? Yes, he is. Okay. He sent us some feedback, and it didn't, not quite in time for the previous show. So we, I told him that we would ensure that we cover it on today's show. He says, a question that was mentioned a few days ago on a social media group was, what makes a pilot a better pilot? With the more modern and sophisticated technology used in today's aircraft, the 777, 787, Airbus 330, 340, and 350 all have excellent automation systems and a much easier fly-by-wire system in place to fly the aircraft. In comparison, the Mad Dog that Captain Jeff flies, or the old L-1011, or even the relatively new 737, used the old style of flight controls, which used the old pulley and cable with little hamsters in the trim wheel, moving it about. Now, we don't have hamsters. They're uh, guinea pigs, I think. Yeah. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, Captain Jeff mentioned how he ended up with a cramp in his leg from holding the rudder in for so long. And that was because uh, I was talking about a a crosswind landing and uh, the fact that I had to basically go full throw with the rudder pedal to keep the fuselage aligned with the runway for landing. Anyway, my questions, which of these systems would make a pilot a better pilot? Does the automation used in today's more modern aircraft hide the deficiencies in some of the less experienced pilots in comparison to the old style of the Mad Dog and 727? As for, or as a prime example, Nick has only flown fly-by-wire in his commercial career, and I say this without his head exploding. I doubt his flying ability or credentials are any less than those of Jeff's in the older style of aircraft. It would be great to hear your thoughts and theories on this. And again, that's First Officer Mike. So, uh, the discussion that he was to which he's referring, uh, we were talking about the fly-by-wire systems in most new generation aircraft now where an input made by the pilot is basically sent to some computers the computers analyze the inputs from the pilot and decide exactly or interpret what the pilot is trying to accomplish and then sends those signals to the control surfaces to affect whatever it is that the uh, the pilot is is attempting and the old system—you take that computer out in the in the chain, and what the input from the pilots go directly to the uh, either mechanical or hydromechanical uh, controls of the control surfaces. And the point that I was trying to make uh, in when we were having this discussion on the social media group was that uh, in the style of airplane that I fly, uh, if if a pilot is not doesn't really have good uh, stick and rudder skills, or is a little bit um, maybe not the smoothest uh, person in actuating controls. You can actually feel it translated through the controls and into the airplane. Whereas, and I guess I'm only guessing because I've never flown a fly-by-wire uh, airplane myself, is that a modern fly-by-wire system where the computer is actually making the changes to the control surfaces can. Perhaps mask or make a pilot who doesn't have really great smooth flying skills actually seem to be a very adept smooth flying pilot. And I'm not sure that makes him a better pilot. Um, I think it just is. It's it would be hard to tell uh, in in that particular case. And that that was the only point I was trying to make. I wasn't trying to disparage anybody flying a fly by wire system, uh, and not at all. Uh, I'm just saying that. Uh, in the older airplanes that don't have that kind of a technology, it's clear to you, uh, whether you're sitting in the cockpit or you're sitting in the back of the airplane, when somebody is hand flying the airplane, especially if they don't do it very well.
3: I, I, would, I would disagree with you, Jeff. I think you fly, fly by a fly-by-wire aircraft right now.
1: Well, yeah, the wires are very, very thick, right? <laughs> yeah. well? well, Dana, Dana, wait a minute. I thought you left. Dana, where the heck are you?
3: Well, you're not gonna get video from me because I can listen, I can talk, but I'm not gonna try to do video while I'm driving.
1: Oh well, that's helpful for everyone, I think.
3: Yes, absolutely. So, but I'm listening, and I'll I'll poke in every once in a while. I know I know the audio isn't the greatest this way, so. But, oh, no, no, uh, but I'm, it's, I'm it's actually here. not bad.
1: Okay, yeah, so you're you're in your vehicle heading down to the airport, I'm assuming. I,
3: I am in my vehicle heading to the airport, and the reason why you heard that the text message, I was trying to hook up the uh, the microphone. Via my uh, adapter, and it just wouldn't accept it. So now I'm on my hands free via my head head uh, headset. So
1: okay, well, it sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, Excellent. so uh, so what do you think, Dana? Then, uh, while we have you here, um, is my is the feeling that I have correct, or am I off base?
3: I think I think you're pretty much right on the right on the money. I mean, people that uh, hand fly the airplane, you know, either you're gonna do it well, you're not gonna do it well, and and I think that uh, uh, you know sometimes you can tell. I don't think you can always tell how good or if the the autopilot's on or off because if the person is flying the airplane is is pretty good at flying the airplane. Uh, it, it, you're gonna feel the smoothness. So I think on the newer generation jets, like what captain nick flies you're going to find that uh, it's going to be a lot harder to tell because you get the auto trim system and the aircraft is a lot smoother because it's you you're not going to have the uh the pitch and roll moment like you do on, a, on an aircraft like what we have because it's completely uh completely fly by the you know metal wire versus electronic wire
1: fly by cable
3: fly by cable exactly so i think uh, you know justifiably on the 88 and 90 you can feel it a lot more Whereas uh, the newer stuff, I don't think you're going to notice as much.
1: What do you say, Captain Nick? You're the one here with the experience on a fly-by-wire airplane. Yeah, and I've
2: I've flown them all from fly-by-cable, albeit military, and uh, fly-by-wire military, and now fly-by-wire civil. So uh, my uh, overall feeling is a good pilot's a good pilot, regardless of what aircraft he's in. it is very easy to fly a fly-by-wire aircraft such as the Airbus badly, and you can certainly tell a bad pilot uh, when he puts his hands on the controls because um, it really doesn't matter that that computer's in the way. If the pilot does something weird with the controls, the airplane's going to do something weird. Uh, the fact that you're demanding a uh, an attitude or a rate rather than physically moving the ailerons or physically moving the elevator to achieve the same yourself, uh, is to a certain extent irrelevant. If you put the wrong input in and you're heavy-handed and uh, on the controls, the airplane will jerk around just like it would do if you had cables and pulleys. So a good pilot's a good pilot wherever he is. Um, And uh, the other thing is that... uh, the other
1: thing is that uh, I've forgotten. <laughs> the other thing is that the other thing is that Dana wants to uh, say something. Yeah, thank God.
3: I, I want to say something. Okay, I'll say. I mean, Nick is absolutely correct. Um, in the fact, that I was really just talking about smoothness of the pilot. I, I would think that the the Airbus would accentuate the smoothness uh, a little bit versus you know or a modern fly-by-wire aircraft would accentuate the the smoothness a little bit better than. Than a cable aircraft, um, but yeah, I agree with you, Nick, 100. If, if in fact the pilot is a terrible pilot, no matter what type of aircraft you're flying, if if you put in a tricky movement, you can get a tricky response. And I agree. Yeah,
2: 100%. yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if you demand a high rate of roll uh, in the Airbus, it'll roll fast and it'll spill everyone's drinks and they'll they'll fall over in the cabin. Um, now, what I was going to say was that uh, the great advantage of fly-by-wire. Is uh, that you know you don't have to move all the controls in the conventional sense. For example, uh, some aircraft. The I'm going to go to military aircraft here because that's where I have my m- most experience. The F-18 uh, fly-by-wire okay. computer could use almost any control surface on the aircraft to achieve a desired thing. So if you wanted to pitch the airplane, it didn't just use the tailor-ons. If you wanted to roll the airplane, it just didn't just use the ailerons. You'd get uh, differential rudder. You'd get on the two fins you get differential tailor-on as well as aileron Um, all would move to achieve what you want and there's the huge advantage if uh, you have a a damaged uh, aircraft say the hydraulic system has cut out some of your flight controls or they've physically been damaged uh, you can't use another flight control to achieve the same effect, whereas in fly-by-wire, if uh, certainly in that aircraft as sophisticated as the F-18, uh, it would go, oh, well, I can't pitch the airplane using this flight control because it's broken now. It's uh, so I'll use something else to achieve the same effect. Um, we had a mid-air collision in the Australian Air Force between two guys, and one chap lost about three feet off the end of his wing, and he was flying around with almost no idea that he had lost so much of his wing. He knew he had a hydraulic problem because he'd um, lost a lot of his hydraulic fluid over, over the board. But the rest of the aircraft flight controls were compensating for the fact that there was a lot of his wing missing and the flight controls on the end of that wing. Um, but he, on the, as far as he was concerned in the cockpit, he didn't know. He couldn't tell the difference because the aircraft was flying so beautifully the computer was making up the difference. And to a certain extent, civil aircraft will, and certainly in the future, they'll have more and more of that capability so that if you don't get uh, a flight control working properly, you lose a hydraulic system, the rest of the aircraft systems and flight controls will compensate for it. So you'll get all sorts of strange movements of your flight controls to achieve the desired effect. Uh, and that is the, the huge advantage. Uh, and the other thing I'm going to just come on to here about manual flying versus uh, flying with automation um, when you listen to the plane tale today two of the accidents uh, that I mentioned were pure pilot uh, lack of pilot skill incidents and um, the the one thing that has uh, changed over the years is that automation has stopped a lot of those errors because now there are warnings or computers to prevent you making those basic mistakes um, so Things are improving. And whilst the pilot is sometimes criticized of being taken out of the loop in other areas, because he's been taken out of the loop, he can't make as many mistakes as he used to in the old days.
1: Very true. Very true. Um, looking at our our brains in the chat room, um, Josine LaFontaine makes an amazing analogy, which uh, basically sums up uh, what I was trying to express in that exchange. And she said, "Is fly-by-wire basically just the auto-tune of flying? So it can make you sing in key, but it can't save you if the song sucks." <laughs> um, I don't know if it's—I don't know if it's a perfect analogy, but I think it's pretty close. Um, you know, and again, I'm making these assumptions without having the experience of flying both the older technology and the newer technology. So uh, I think that um, I've been set straight a bit, but again the the question that mike asks which of these systems would make a pilot a better pilot make a pilot a better pilot i don't think that uh, any of these systems makes a pilot a better pilot it may make a not so great pilot seem to be better that was my only point i guess but i could be wrong that's yeah, good point though.
3: Yeah, very all good right. point. And I, w- I would say one thing is is that the controls are like with our aircraft, Jeff, uh, are very sluggish. So we're basically yep. moving a very big piece of uh, metal with a very small trim tab. So the mm-hmm. ailerons and the elevators are controlled with a trim tab, whereas the you know the fly-by-wire aircraft are all hydraulically controlled surfaces. So they're they're far more responsive to inputs versus mm-hmm. us. Who, you know, if you if you take the time and go out to YouTube and look at a video of an MD-88 approach, you can see the guys, you know, fighting with the airplane, you know, it looks like they're fighting with the airplane, but that's, we move the controls far more, uh, a greater, uh, distance to travel because, well, we, we have far less mechanical advantage than if you do with a fly-by-wire aircraft.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true as well. Uh, Lane Street makes a, a, a very good point, And I guess it's going to be the, basically the, the dot on the exclamation point you can tell a bad pilot, you just can't tell him much.
2: Bam. Very oh, good.
1: Very nice. All right. Well, I think it was a good discussion. Thank you, First Officer Mike, for uh, bringing it to the uh, the show. I think that was a, uh, a great piece of feedback. Thank you. Speaking of great pieces of feedback, Carl and Mark both sent us this, and it was a rep. Uh, during one of the storms, I think the first Nor'easter uh, that we had a couple of weeks ago, um, the, the uh, PIREP on an ACARS uh, message read like this. IAD, uh, I guess, uh, Dulles International, um, and some other things. I don't know what they stand for. Uh, let me just get to the body of the uh, PIREP. A CRJ-200. two uh, at flight level 040, so 4,000 feet, a CRJ-2 says, moderate to severe turbulence, um, very bumpy on descent. Pretty much everyone on the plane threw up. Pilots were on the verge of throwing up. <laughs> you don't normally see a wrap like that. No, But no. it does get your attention, doesn't did it? Did they both eat the fish? <laughs> Maybe everybody did. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hear that. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, if you're wondering, um, when you, we experience turbulence, it really does depend on what type of airplane you're in as to the uh, the way the turbulence feels. So I uh, might characterize something as light to moderate, whereas somebody in a heavier airplanes, so a 747 or an Airbus A380 may hardly even notice it. Uh, so you know a CRJ two hundred is not the largest uh, airliner out there, and of course they're going to feel moderate to severe turbulence much more significantly than uh, the bigger airplanes. And Dana can probably confirm that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as you as as I flew the RJ for a long time, and you hear the reports, and that's exactly what I was thinking with this report is their perspective is completely different. And you have to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, you, you get a guy going around in a, in a 172, his version of, of modern turbulence is gonna be completely different than what an RJ guy's version of modern turbulence will be. So um, yeah, it, it's all perspective. And you know, another way to look at it is an ocean going liner, you know, a big cruise ship versus a, you know, a tugboat. I mean, which one is gonna feel the, the, the waves more? So that gives you another way of looking at uh, the turbulence. In,
1: in what we feel up in the air. Correct. Thank you, Dana. Okay, uh, let's see. Let's keep on moving. Uh, Paul De Silva. You mentioned uh, Paul in the in New York. He is a an engineer, a, a tech a mechanic. Uh, I believe working in the engine shop there, and perhaps he mentions that in this feedback here. I'm trying to remember if I listened to it. I don't think I have yet. So, uh, And he did uh,
2: mention to me he was hoping to move from the engine shop on to a more line uh, oriented
1: engineering, which will give him a different look at the world. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so Paul writes, hello, Captain Jeff. Hope uh, to find you well. I provided some audio feedback in my attempt to explain how N1 is measured. Regards, Paul. So take it away, Paul.
4: Hello to all the APG community, uh, this is Paul, your Newark based aircraft technician for, I guess, ACME Golden Globe Airlines. Um, I hope I hope all are doing well. Uh, before I get to my feedback, I want to state that it was a great pleasure to meet Captain Nick a few days ago in Newark. Uh, despite coming off a transatlantic flight and looking a bit tired, uh, he took a few minutes of his time to chat with me and it, it was just a great pleasure to meet, uh, to meet him. Uh, he was just such a, a humble giant. He was—he was a lot taller than I expected him to be. But uh, just the kindest, sweetest man, and it was great. It was just great meeting you. Uh, I really can't wait to uh, to go down to uh, one of the APG meets and uh, meet the rest of the crew. And, and my apologies, Captain Nick, to uh, to your crew for delaying them a bit. Uh, despite being a little bit shy, I have a tendency to just suddenly open up and start yapping on and on about airplanes. Uh, So, not to my feedback, because you guys were discussing N1 and jet engines the other day. Now, what I'm about to explain is what's been explained to me from uh, all the manuals, including speaking to engineers and representatives from GE, uh, the the manufacturer of most of the, uh, the engines my airline uses. And my explanation, and from everything I've ever read and spoken to people and dealt with, is that N1 is just actually an arbitrary number, meaning 100% N1 does not mean the engine is producing 100% of its rated thrust. You know, the same way a value greater than 100%, uh, 100% N1 is not indicative that the engine is producing more thrust than what it's rated for. And, and let me explain. It pretty much comes down to a particular en- uh, engine variant. In particular, airlines. Now, I'm going to take my airline, uh, for instance. Uh, I'm going to use the 737. Uh, our our airline uses the Dash 700 and the Dash 800, and even the Dash 900. But let's just stick with the 700 and 800. And uh, both aircraft, uh, you know, the 737 uses the CFM56 turbofans, but the engines themselves come in different variants, uh, which we, the technician, that uh, we configure depending on whether it's going on a 700 model or an 800 model. So let's look at this particular engine that we just received. Uh, it comes with a test uh, test data sheet from GE uh, that we use to configure the engine. Uh, it's going to come in either the 24,000 pound thrust rating for the 737-700 or the 26,000 pound thrust uh, rating for the 737-800. Now, let me remind you, it's the same exact engine, but it produces two different max takeoff thrust, depending on the configuration and whether it's going on a dash 700 or a dash 800. Okay, so we received our engine and it's scheduled to be installed on a 737-700, so we configure it which in itself is a simple method. Uh, The engine has an EC, the the electronic engine control or FEDAC computer to which all the electric connectors connect to. Now in the EC, there's a connector called a rating plug. And in this plug has push-pull pins. And depending on whether you want the engine to produce 24,000 pounds of thrust or 26,000 pounds, you configure these pins by pulling or pushing Um, based on what is on the data sheet that we receive from the engine. Okay, so we configure this engine and now we know that this particular engine that's going on a 737-700 is going to produce a max takeoff thrust of 24,000 pounds. Now here comes the N1 explanation. As I mentioned before, the, the N1 is just an arbitrary number. In our 737, the highest N1 figure is about 102 N1, which means that for this particular engine configuration, we know that at 102 N1, the engine is putting out its max rated thrust of 24,000 pounds. we where, uh, um, where if we're to, let's just say we were to configure the 737 800, we know that 102 N1 is producing 26,000 pounds. Now this 102 N1 figure is very rarely ever met under normal operating procedures because based on the configuration of the aircraft and it's full load and ambient temperature and even in a hot day in Denver on a pretty much fully loaded 737 you would see something like 99% N1 it's very rare that you would ever see the 102 N1 max rating. Again, it's, it's all based on the particular engine and aircraft configuration. Now to add to the explanation as to why N1 is arbitrary, let's use two different airlines. For instance, let's use United and American. They both use 737-800s. But depending on the engine variant, the United 737 can have a max N1 of 102, but an American can have a max n1 of 103 or 104 so both are producing this both engines on the two different airlines are producing the same takeoff thrust but using different n1 numbers and that's why n1 is not specifically set to a constant thrust rating because that number changes from engine to engine and from airplane to airplane the, the surest way to know is to have the technical uh, technical data sheet from the test cell and have all the numbers uh, that match those numbers that are displayed on the engine instruments and it's obviously it's something that the pilots don't get to see they don't get to see the, the our technical data sheet. Um, I hope I explained it well you know I have a tendency to ramble on and on and sometimes over explain things. Um, I'm quite confident that Either Captain Nick or Captain Jeff or it might take both of them will take what I said and decipher and explain it in a more concise manner. Before I go, I just want to give a little update on my professional life. As I mentioned before, I'm a technician in Newark and after seventeen years working in the engine shop, I have switched to line maintenance. So I gave up fuel flow governors and hydromechanical units for auto throttles and weather radars. And it's good. I, I now get a chance to have face-to-face interaction with the pilots when they command. They you know if they have a gripe with with the aircraft, um, if there's any issues. If you know sometimes the plane comes in and it's good, and sometimes it comes in and it has a write-up of some sort. Um, and it's a little out of my comfort zone because you know when you spend 17 years in the hangar building and repairing jet engines with flexible timelines, it can be a, you know quite a, a challenge when your aircraft arrives with you know, an autopilot right up and you have very little time to fix the issue uh, to ensure that the aircraft is ready for the next flight, you know, only a few hours later. And that's where experience comes in and I'm adjusting well. Fortunately for me, I have a great group of technicians who kind of took me under their wing and showed me a few maintenance tips and quick fixes, you know, based on the input from the maintenance manual, of course. And I'm glad I did because um, I feel like I learned more about the airplane in one year in the line than I did 17 years in in the engine shop, which, you know, of course, there's a drawback because when there's an engine issue, all eyes turn to me like, hey. Hey, go ahead and fix it. You know, you know, this engine in and out, right? Don't you? So, uh, so my advice is don't be afraid to try new things. You know, sometimes it's good to get out of your comfort zone. And I'm looking at you, Captain Nick, that control yoke sure looks good sitting there right in front of you, you know, where your comfortable tray table used to be, I'm just saying, you you might like it. So until next time, wishing y'all clear skies with a gusty crosswind just to keep you guys on your toes so long for now bye-bye
1: awesome paul and you know what i think i almost had to pull these things out and and, and blow the dust off of them but just for the heck of it
2: <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent.
1: That is a compliment because it was very Miami Rick like uh, your uh, uh, explanation of uh, N one RPM and thrust and everything else and uh, very well done and and uh, I don't extremely I well don't, done I'm not yeah. even gonna try and uh, I am not either when he said I'm sure that Captain Nick and Captain <laughs> Jeff will uh, no I'm not gonna touch yeah, we'll that one <laughs> no that was good job sir. Very good. Very good. And I remember that we have something in our list of feedback, uh, number 16, uh, to keep you uh, on the same page, Captain Nick, uh, again, regarding this subject. Um, and uh, th- uh, thanks again, Paul, for uh, taking the time. Great audio, uh, by the way. Um, yeah. Thanks for right, uh, for sending that in and great content as well. We do appreciate that. Um, Jonathan uh, Turfbower uh, in Austin sent this in he says uh, i sensed on episode 313 that you are all starting to get tired of the subject but i thought i might be able to add one piece of relevant information oh no and once actually,
2: we get rid of this we can tackle uh, flexed takeoffs
1: can't we flex temperatures that's another good one well no, let's do yeah, we've, <laughs> we've done that before and i don't am not sure we really <laughs> <That went laughs> made it on clear and, on, on. Well, you know, sometimes the more you try to explain something, the more confused you get um, the person trying to explain it. (laughs) Anyway, do carry on, Okay. Uh, Let's see. Uh, So I thought I might be able to add one piece of relevant information and actually put my aerospace engineering degree to good use for once. As you know, the majority of the thrust produced by high bypass turbofan engines comes from the fan itself. This means that the three basic fan laws apply. I didn't even know there were fan laws, but apparently there are. Law number one, if you double the fan speed, you double the airflow. Law two, if you double the fan speed, the pressure increases four X or four times or fan speed squared. And law three, if you want to double the fan speed, you need eight times the amount of power to turn it. Or fan speed cubed. Pressure is what creates thrust and N1 is measuring fan rotation speed. So law two is what's relevant here and that's why as Captain Nick mentioned going from 80 to 100% N1 is a much bigger increase in thrust than going from 40 to 60%. Here's a link to a graph that helps visualize this. It shows N1 versus thrust for a CFM 56 from a 737. And I went ahead and uh, copied and pasted that chart for us to look at, Nick. And again, it's a logarithmic uh, kind of a line or uh, yeah yeah, graph that basically shows you the first, um, well, I guess until you get to about 75% uh, from 75 percent to 100 percent, you're getting um, you know at uh, half the power. Uh, so uh, and from zero to 75 percent, you're getting that first 50 percent of thrust, and then once you hit the 75 percent, according to this chart in this particular engine, at about 75 percent or so through 100 percent, you're getting the uh, the the second half of of the thrust available of of the engine. I don't know if I'm explaining that well enough, but uh, maybe Nick, you can help me with that.
2: Uh, well, yeah. Well, I'd say was that uh, I'm looking here at the, the first half of the power, say between 30 and 65%. Yes. You've, you've increased uh, thrust by about a third and the second half, which is the same percentage increase. You've increased it thrust by two thirds. So yeah, there's, it's the, um, the, the, Higher the RPM, the greater the, the steepness of the thrust curve. So, uh, the more thrust you're getting uh, for each RPM, you're increasing. Yep.
1: Yeah. I was just thinking while you were explaining that, um, uh, the, uh, the podcast, um, <laughs> uh, Omega Tau, um, Marcus. Uh, uh, yeah. Where's Marcus? Yeah. Uh, Marcus. He, yeah. I don't he think just- he's a, uh, He's not probably up to speed on um, our latest episodes, because I'm sure that we'll hear from Marcus eventually about this.
2: Yeah, he's only just come back from uh, HMS in, uh, oh, gosh, I was going to say Endeavor. I don't think it is. It's uh, Enterprise. I think he was on Enterprise. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. That sounds so right. He yeah. did a great, uh, he, he used to complain that our shows were getting a bit long. That was five and a half hours of audio for one
1: show. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, you know oh. what? Here's another uh, interesting thing: uh, the PTUK, the Plain Talking oh, UK yeah. podcast that you were too. just on.
2: How long <laughs> was that? Yeah, that was two and a half, coming on three hours. They, you yeah,
1: know, they're all getting it's there. Funny the way that happens, isn't yeah, it? We just yeah, quit poking weird. fun at us. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, thank you, uh, Jonathan, for that, and I uh, hope to make another trip down to Austin slash San Antonio or whatever and meeting up with you guys. Um, that was a lot of fun in San Antonio. Uh, Austin, I, I I need to get back there soon because I, I need to have another fix of that awesome uh, mesquite smoked brisket that you guys are so good at. Mosquito brisket. salt Mesquite. Salt. Mesquite. Mes- salt Salt, Lake salt Lick. Salt Lick. Yeah. Salt Lick is, uh, like, uh, amongst the best. A, salt the lick is a big lump of, uh, rock salt. You put out for the cows, isn't it? It is exactly what that is. Okay. <laughs> wow. Dana, uh, watch, watch the footman, Watch the throttle. Sounds like you're, uh, getting a little bit too exuberant. <laughs> Either that, or you just rolled off no, the road. No, no,
3: that's, that's the bust. <laughs> that, that's the bust. A bus. Oh,
1: well, you're on the bus now. Okay, cool. Wow, we're, we're having an exciting time, aren't I'm still, we?
3: I'm still here listening.
1: Yeah, okay, here great. Listening. Great. And then the people around you, are you on the bus itself?
3: Just getting on right
1: now. Gotcha. Okay. And now people are going to be looking at, at him going, what the heck is this guy doing? Okay. Um, so thank you, Paul De Silva and Jonathan Turfbower, for... Uh, the hopefully the last bit of information regarding N one versus thrust for a while anyway. <laughs> so, um, Tom, Tommy, oh, you know, we uh, meet up that uh, last minute, not planned for meetup that uh, we had in uh, Houston a few weeks back. Um, I met up with several great members of the APG community, one of them being Tommy. And uh, he was sitting right next to me there, and he was filling us in on his uh, progress, his piloting progress. And he writes, Hi, Jeff. Met you the last time you were down here in Houston at the APG meetup, and I told you that I finished the ground portion of the commercial pilot rating and was waiting to do the flight portion. I wanted to write in and let you know that three reschedules later, due to weather, I finally finished the flight portion out at Hooks, uh, Kilo Delta Whiskey Hotel, this past Saturday, 3-3-2018. I'll be moving on to CFI initial in a couple of weeks and looking forward to continuing this journey. It was such an honor to meet you and hoping to again next time you're around. So that, of course, we need to play this. The applause.
2: Good job, sir. Way to go, Tommy. Yeah, well
1: done. All right. Um, So good to hear. Yeah, As I always do with people that are trying to make their way to wherever they're going in the uh, aviation world as far as a career, I always ask them to give us an update on their progress. And uh, Tommy complied. Thank you, sir, for that. Oh, it's
2: always nice to keep tabs on these guys. And lovely to see people uh, entering the
1: industry. It's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely is. Andy writes, 10, some thoughts on age in the cockpit decisions and helping with accuracy. So The says, older I the can- better.
2: The older <laughs> the better.
1: You got that right. <laughs> Hi, Captain Jeff and the APG crew. Andy from the A320 podcast here. Never heard of it. No, it's a really great podcast. Yeah, A320. They, they need permanent podcast.
2: tickets on that podcast.
1: Yeah. And uh, we got to meet um, Andy at the uh, gathering, right? Yes. He uh, was, yeah. yeah it right right was Andy. Right. Uh, it was great to meet you. Oh, yeah. Right here, he says. It was great to meet yourself and Captain Nick at the Plane Talking UK podcast 200th episode in London and to have a chat with you both. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to meet Dr. Oh, that Steph. The, be- bit of the best bit of the show. Dr. I know. Steph. The best uh, part of the crew. Yeah. I was just listening to APG 311 and thought I would send in some feedback, firstly, about the chap who spotted a young captain and an old first officer in Wellington, New Zealand. I gained my command at a relatively young age of 31, and in my airline, there are commanders as young as 26. This is quite a common thing in certain large European airlines. I do often fly with first officers who are significantly older than myself one guy in particular is the same age as my dad. A lot of them have no desire to upgrade a captain and are happy staying in the right-hand seat. I also agree with Nick and Dana that some of the hardest decisions to make as a captain are deciding if you're actually fit to fly and the fitness of the rest of the crew, especially when or after a long and tiring day of disruption on long four sector days. Finally, the, just to ensure you maintain your 50% accuracy and not to step on Captain Nick's toes in any way during that, an auto land. Get those rickets
2: out. Get those rickets
1: out. <laughs> <laughs> during an auto land, the Airbus will call retard at 10 feet with the autothrust engaged, or in normal conditions, so manual flight, it will call retard at 20 feet. Really enjoying the shows as they keep me sane on the long drive to work around the M25.
2: Well, the rate I'm coming down, it's like ten, twenty, bang. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same. I ten feet, tell. twenty feet. There's no difference. <laughs> yeah, it's all a blur. Those callouts. <laughs> can't talk fast enough.
1: Oh man. Uh, thank you, Andy, for that. And again, if uh, well, regardless of whether you're uh, an Airbus A320 pilot or not, or or aspire to be one you should check out their great show, the A320 podcast. And,
2: oh, absolutely, uh,
1: yeah. Really yeah. great show.
2: Uh, yeah, it, you can paint the wall and then you can watch the paint dry and listen to that show at the same time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> joking, wow. guys. I can't think of a better, uh, you know, <laughs> a better plug better for way. their show there.
2: A <laughs> better way to spend your time.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, that's not where I was going, but okay, very technical, yeah. hi-
2: highly competent guy. <laughs> I know what they're talking about
1: they uh, really go into depth. Yep. So, uh, let's see, number eleven, Tony had to board an aircraft on the right side. He says, "You know, we were talking about that. Uh, you mm. know, why does the captain sit in the left seat? Why yeah. do we always board from the left?" He said, uh, "During a holiday in Corfu, is that the way you say that, Corfu?" Yep. A couple of years ago, my wife was unfortunate enough to break her leg. Returning home in a large plaster cast required a wheelchair, and at the airport, we were put into what was really a large box with windows mounted on it on a forklift truck. Uh, The said forklift was driven out to the aircraft, and we were hoisted up to enter the aircraft via the right-hand door. Thus, if you're really keen to board an aircraft from the wrong side, this would be possible, though... Uh, This would be a possible, though, slightly drastic solution. Keep up the good work, (laughs) Tommy Smith.
2: (laughs) Yes, Yes, the high lifts, as they're regularly called, uh, yeah, they do come in on the other side because obviously the steps and the jetways are on the left side, so you can't plug them in very easily from the, uh, unless you come in on the right side. So that is one way, in, you're quite right.
1: Yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's kind of extreme to actually go out and pr- purposely break your leg just so you can board the aircraft on the right side. Eh, it wouldn't yeah. work about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, we alluded to this earlier in the show where we were talking about uh, the area surrounding Newark Airport and uh, the plane tail associated with that. And uh, without further ado, why don't we play this week's installment from the old pilot? The Fears of Elizabeth.
2: The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. The Fears of Elizabeth. We have recently experienced the safest year in aviation history. Worldwide accident rates have fallen to the point where a single accident becomes headline news across the world and even incidents which result in a perfectly safe landing become publicised and made into dramatic events. Imagine then what a furor would erupt should a single airport suffer three major crashes in three months within a mile or two of each other in the same suburb. As unbelievable as it seems to us now, such a thing happened, and it wasn't in some third world country, it was in the United States. The airfield is the very one I shall fly to tomorrow, Newark International Airport near New York, and the suburb that was struck was the city of Elizabeth in New Jersey. The first accident occurred not long before Christmas, on the 16th of December 1951. The Miami Airlines Curtiss C-46 Commando Airliner was due to depart from Newark, bound for Tampa in Florida. The aircraft was a military conversion. Built towards the end of the war, it was powered by a pair of Pratt & Whitney Double Wasp engines, one of which had been giving problems. That morning, Captain Lyons might well have been questioning his engineers about the excessive oil use from his starboard engine, since it was nearly twice that of the port one. However, despite the difference in oil consumption, the power plant was still working within limits and the aircraft was declared serviceable. So... Early in the afternoon, the 52 passengers climbed on board to be met by the six crew, and Lyons prepared his aircraft for departure. The first hint of trouble that day came as Captain Lyons started his right engine. It took a long time to run up, much longer than the left, and nearby personnel noted that it was continuously streaming a light-coloured smoke. Whether anyone informed the crew is unknown, but Lyons continued with his flight, taxiing for runway 28. The weather was good, with excellent visibility and a westerly wind of 20 knots. At 15.02, takeoff clearance was received, and flight 1678 Mike took off. Almost immediately, the condition of the right engine began to cause alarm, but mainly from the ground. In the Newark Tower, controllers were alarmed at the trail of white smoke coming from the right engine, and as the aircraft climbed slowly away, the tower supervisor hit the airport crash alarm. The controllers put out a call for 1678 Mike to land any way possible, any way they wished. They were cleared back to the field. This was not acknowledged. A well-meaning Miami Airlines captain on the ground watched the aircraft get airborne, and, mistaking the origin of the smoke, he phoned the tower at Newark to tell the crew to keep its gear down he thought that the smoke must be coming from an overheated brake. Having previously raised their gear, the crew loaded again, a decision that almost certainly sealed their fate. The trail of smoke progressively worsened whilst the C-46 climbed ahead for several miles, eventually reaching nearly a thousand feet. Then the colour changed to black and flames burst from underneath the right engine nacelle. The crew started a gentle left turn, and witnesses stated that they were flying at a very low speed. The crippled aircraft, still streaming smoke and flames from its right engine, began to slowly descend, but then the fire appeared to go out. By now they were around three miles southwest of the airport, and flying over the city of Elizabeth. Just as things seemed to be improving, the flames re-emerged, and the aircraft seemed to reduce speed even further, with the right engine propeller turning only slowly. The C-46 was well placed for a safe landing with only a 60 degree turn and around two miles to cover to reach runway 06, but it was fast running out of height, being only around 200 feet. At this point the aircraft rolled rapidly left until it reached 90 degrees of bank and then it began to fall from the sky. The left wing tip struck the gabled end of a house. The C-46 continued to roll onto its back and it struck an industrial building before plunging ahead into the bank of the Elizabeth River, coming to rest inverted in shallow water. With around 800 gallons of high-octane fuel on board, a fierce fire developed instantly, which spread to the surrounding area. Fire appliances arrived quickly, but it took around 17 minutes to quell the blaze. All on board had been killed. Amazingly, there were no additional deaths, but one person in the vicinity was severely injured. The Civil Aeronautics Board conducted an inquiry and discovered that the problem originated with the number 10 cylinder of the right engine, which failed when the cylinder hold-down studs, having been improperly fitted, came loose. Damaged systems caught fire, which then became uncontrollable. It is likely that the crew only partially completed the fire drill in addition to making errors. For example, the first action of the fire drill, which was written on a cockpit placard, required the fuel, oil and hydraulics to be shut off, none of which had been done ultimately appeared that the aircraft was mishandled and stalled in the turn whilst trying to turn back to the airfield. The low speed was probably due to the extra drag that came from the lowered undercarriage. At the time this was the second most deadly accident on US soil but things were about to get worse. Just over a month later a mere 45 minutes after the girls of Batten High School and Elizabeth had been dismissed from their classes, disaster struck again. Captain Reed had only recently returned from flying airlift missions to Japan, and today he was on a routine flight from Syracuse to Newark, flying an American Airlines Convair 240 as Flight 6780. The weather at Newark wasn't great, with a ceiling of 500 feet, sky obscured, visibility three quarters of a mile in snow, light sleet, and freezing rain, with freezing conditions below 4,000 feet. The wind was strong in a generally southeast direction above 1,000 feet, but it decreased to an almost calm condition at ground level. The flight had progressed well and Reed was setting up his aircraft for an ILS approach to runway 06 at Newark, the same runway that the Miami flight had been trying to reach only a month earlier. The instrument landing system was a new system for pilots to use and was monitored by a controller using the ground approach radar. Captain Reed had only flown 17 ILS approaches previously. Flight 6780 was following behind another American Airlines Convair 240, which completed a successful and uneventful landing. Reed checked in with the GCA controller as he passed over Linden at 1,500 feet. He intercepted the ILS beams and began his descent towards the runway. The controller gave a commentary on his progress.
1: 6780, this is Newark Radar, have you five and a half miles out, coming up on the glide path, and you're 900 feet to the left, of course. Coming back to the course now, you're now 400 feet left, glide path is good, four and a half miles out. Glide path is good, three and a half miles out, and you're drifting to the right, you're 900 feet to the right, of course, and half a mile from the courthouse.
2: Shortly after, the radar return from the Convair 240 disappeared from the scope, Eyewitnesses on the ground saw the aircraft at around 150 feet skimming along the buildings of South Street, which is aligned about 40 degrees right of the runway. The aircraft's engines sounded rough, misfiring with loud bangs and roars of power. After continuing for about three city blocks, the aircraft ended a steep descent and crashed a short distance from the now empty girls' school. Captain Reed's house was only a few blocks from the crash scene. His wife, pregnant with their third child, heard the impact which killed her husband, and the other twenty two on board, plus seven on the ground. The board found no faults on the aircraft or with the instrument landing system. The rapid descent that took the aircraft from its last known altitude to where the witnesses saw it and the turn it took did, however, give some clues. The propellers were found to be at different pitch angles, 33 degrees on the left, which was consistent for an approach, but 41 on the right. This, combined with the reports of rough running and the icing conditions, gave rise to the possibility of carburetor icing. There was nothing to suggest that it hadn't been selected, but the conditions may have overwhelmed the heating system. Surging of a large displacement engine, particularly when at low speed and with drag devices deployed, may well have explained the large deviation from the correct flight path. This was the very first Convair 240 to crash, and despite an extensive investigation, the board determined that the evidence was inconclusive. However, it seemed that the city of Elizabeth was cursed. Dismayed by two disasters in his city so close together, according to a newspaper account, the mayor of Elizabeth, James T. Kirk, issued a demand for the relocation of Newark Airport to remove an umbrella of danger from the city. Having invested a large amount of money in the airport, the New York Port Authority refused. Just three weeks later, it was the turn of National Airways Flight 101. This modern four-engine Douglas DC-6 was departing Newark bound for Miami. It was just past midnight when the Newark controllers cleared National 101 to take off from runway 24. On the aircraft were 59 passengers and a crew of four. Captain Foster was an experienced man with over 11,000 hours and more than 1,000 on type. He and his crew picked up their aircraft at Idlewild, now JFK Airport, and positioned it to Newark before embarking their passengers for the non-stop flight to Miami. Opening up the throttles of their four mighty Pratt & Whitney double wasp engines, they accelerated into the night and climbed out normally. Then the controllers saw the aircraft suddenly lose height and veer to the right. They called Flight 101, asking if it was all right. The crew replied that they had lost an engine and were returning to the field. Losing one of four engines wouldn't normally be life-threatening, but the aircraft continued to descend in a right-hand spiral until the controllers lost sight of it. A few minutes later, having lost radio contact with the DC-6, the tower personnel saw the ominous sight of a large fire growing in Elizabeth near the intersection of Scotland Road and Westminster Avenue. Flight 101 had crashed. Of the 63 passengers, remarkably, 33 survived along with the flight attendant, but all the cockpit crew perished. Although the aircraft barely missed an orphanage, it struck a four-storey apartment where an additional four people died. When the Civil Aeronautics Board examined the wreckage, they discovered that both numbers 1 and 2 engines on the left wing were were running perfectly, as was the number four engine on the right wing. However, for no apparent reason, that propeller was feathered, so it wasn't producing any power. The inboard engine on the right wing, the number three, was also a puzzle, since it was in full reverse pitch. Engineering records indicated that the red flag, showing that the pitch of the propellers could be reversed, had previously stayed up after takeoff, whereas it should have dropped out of sight when the wheels left the ground. In addition, a fault with the number four propeller showed that it could be moved into reverse when being shifted out of the feathered position. The propeller was overhauled, and when considered serviceable, it was placed onto the number three engine of the accident aircraft. The likely course of events was that during the initial climb out of Newark, the number three propeller incorrectly moved into the reverse pitch position, where it would have produced a large amount of drag and caused a significant yaw to the right the crew incorrectly interpreted this large swing as a problem with their number 4 outboard engine since the engines furthest from the centerline usually produce the largest swing however an engine in reverse thrust would also produce a large swing having misidentified the faulty propeller they feathered their perfectly serviceable number 4 engine thereby cutting off a source of thrust that might have saved them. The resulting loss of power and large swing caused an inevitable loss of control leading to the downward spiral into the buildings of Elizabeth. The outcry from the residents of Elizabeth was understandably loud, particularly after Mayor James T. Kirk's earlier demands to have the airport shut down. President Truman immediately closed Newark and formed a commission to look at airport safety nationwide. 119 people had been killed in only 52 days. Many Americans believe that the nation's 60 airports should all be shut down until airplanes stopped inexplicably falling out of the sky. However, The New York Times supported commercial aviation, and in the editorial, The Airport Problem, they said, It's not possible to remove landing fields to entirely uninhabited areas. To do so would destroy the very value of air transport. The airplane is here to stay. Lieutenant General James H. Doolittle, the World War II hero and chairman of Truman's Airport Commission, urged that Newark Field be allowed to reopen, saying that the Newark Airport had had just a most unusual accumulation of bad luck. The Commission ultimately agreed, since it was conclusively proved that there was no link between the causes of the three accidents. After all, they said, more people were killed from riding bicycles than from falling aircraft. The airport reopened four months later with a promise from Truman to establish no-build zones extending half a mile from the runway ends and to enact zoning laws to prohibit housing from being constructed within approach areas. Appropriations for airport safety were increased, pilot examinations tightened and air traffic navigation aids improved. Only two years later, 1954 proved to be a turning point for aviation safety with not a single American airline fatality reported on U.S. soil.
1: Wow, talking about a spate of bad luck, huh?
2: Oh, for sure, particularly if you lived in Elizabeth. Mind you, after that third one, it probably would have been a good place to go buy a house. (laughs) Because we all all know bad things happen in threes. So they were going to be safe after that, weren't they?
3: I thought that was excellent. And by the way, I picked up on one thing. James T. Kirk, Can anybody pick up on that one?
2: Oh, oh yeah, yeah
3: man!
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody did. a <laughs> few, few of those. Uh, you had a James T. Kirk, who was uh, quite a, a famous officer in the Civil War, and you had a James Kirk, who was a commander of a, a United States warship uh, during the Second World War.
3: And then one of a international, international, uh, uh, not international, but uh, um, galactic starship called the enterprise
1: yep uh, exactly right so cool so how is everything going for you uh, dana are you in the lounge or what
3: yep in the lounge uh, just uh, heading to uh heading to the gate here shortly just stopped at the ATM. they are logged in and i'm seeing a lot of black white and gold down here
2: well excellent well hope you have a safe trip yeah, enjoy yourself and uh, earn some money.
3: Well, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm sorry you had to, had to leave, but yeah, money talks, especially with the bills you gotta, you gotta pay them. Um, I think you mean uh, the the, uh, the company
1: is the company is calling and uh, and uh, the chivalrous Dana is uh, is is there to provide his services.
3: Yes, of course, my services are well. Well, I'm uh, uh, much wanted. So. Here
1: I am. <laughs> That's what we hear. That's what she said. I'm still here, so I'm going to be listening still. So. Okay, excellent. Uh, let's see. So that was our plane tales. Anything else to uh, say to wrap that up, uh, Nick? No, no, it's just that uh, you know I was amazed how many
2: pilot errors occurred during those accidents mm-hmm. when you think about it. I mean, the uh, C-46 guys... Never even started the uh, engine fire checklist. Um, the uh, the last guys in the uh, um, the DC six, they uh, they shut down or effectively shut down by furthering the wrong engine. Um, uh, the only guys that were probably caught out and it wasn't really their fault, although they was not uh, assured that they put the carburetor heating on, was the the poor guys um, that iced up on their ILS. But uh, yeah, uh, they, they, you know. Those were rough old days for for flying. There were a lot of accidents.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately. But everything is so much safer now. Um, Uh, Yeah, it is. All right. Uh, Moving on to uh, Matthew, number 12. Hi there, APG crew. My name is Matthew, a pilot in training from Vancouver, Canada. I own a 1976 Cessna 150 to slowly putt around the Pacific Northwest. Also in the process of joining the Royal Canadian Air Force, I passed the pilot selection last year and I'm working on a university degree, university degree now, long time listener, first time caller. (laughs) Uh, Anywho, I had a suggestion for Captain Nick for a plane tails. I recommend an installment about Rear Admiral Albert O. Vorse Jr., a World War II naval aviator and ace. The reason I bring this up is that Paul Allen, Microsoft billionaire, just found the wreck of the USS Lexington yesterday, March 5th, at the time of writing. With the wreckage of the ship were several several aircraft, including Voorce's F four F Wildcat, complete with victory markings. Also, a few episodes back, someone recommended coming coming to the Abbotsford Air Show. I second that motion. I guess Abbotsford uh, is some somewhere uh, on the outskirts of Vancouver Canada mm. uh, thanks for all the hard work you all put into the podcast really keeps me motivated and enthusiastic throughout my flight training when things get tough. sincerely Van City Matt. I guess that's uh, stands for Vancouver City.
2: yeah thank well, you that's, Matt. It's a great uh, suggestion. Thanks I've already taken a look. And I have to produce one in the next couple of days, so uh, uh, it's quite topical, isn't it? I saw those pictures; they were in the um, London Times uh, newspaper, which I get daily, uh, and really clear. I mean, crystal clear. And I was amazed uh, how clean the side of the aircraft were. You could see the uh, the, the painted uh, silhouettes of uh, the Japanese aircraft that Boris uh, had shot down. Uh, on the side of his aircraft, so I uh, I, I thought it was a great picture, um, and uh, of course uh, I didn't actually look to see who it was, whose aircraft it was. But thanks for that, uh, Matthew. Um, uh, we may get that one next week if I if I can find enough
1: on it. Excellent. Okay, um, Abbotsford Air Show. Um, you know, I would love to go to every darn air show out there. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work, work out with our schedules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe after Nick and I are, are retired, we can, uh, we can just travel around the world doing the podcast and, uh, attending air shows.
2: Well, that'd be nice, but I think my retired, uh, um, staff travel rights are pretty dismal. So I don't think I'll be going to too many. You'll
1: have to come to all the air shows here. Yeah. Or we can just buy some kind of a. You know, an airplane to uh, fly ourselves well, about. Buying
3: tickets? to buy tickets? Come on, Nick.
1: Well, <laughs> no, not when I've stopped working, mate. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm <laughs> a rich
2: captain now, but I won't be for long. Oh, 547 no,
1: I'll
2: put you days. Ah, oh, you're very kind. Oh, nice. 547 <laughs> 546 days now. Look at that. Uh, who's counting? Who's yeah, counting? Who's
1: counting? <laughs> 546 days. Woo. Wow. I did, a, awesome. I did a thing, uh, I think Liz told me to enter into uh, Google, and uh, I Googled how many more days I have. It's over 2,000. 2,118 or something like uh, that. Oh, no. And I'm counting
3: every one of them.
1: <laughs> As you should. Um, anyway, let's see. Number 13, Lefty. Some feedback regarding... APG three thirteen. I'd like to give you some insight regarding the Ryanair incident. Uh, okay, so the Ryanair incident. This is Lefty Lewis. Um, let me. I'm trying to remember exactly what happened. Oh, the the um, they were given clearance to descend out of thirty six to uh, thirteen, right. and uh, they then they got an amended clearance, and uh, they kind of you know pulled back maybe a little bit too aggressively to get back to thirty whatever it was they they were uh, assigned. Um, He says, Ryanair is somewhat famous amongst the pilots in Europe for having very lengthy and strict SOPs. This is, I believe, due to the fact that many of the pilots are newly hired from flight schools. And if you follow the standard operating procedures exactly to the line, you'll be safe 99% of the times without thinking too much about it. Dana's right when he mentioned VNAV. They love to fly with VNAV and line training captains encourage the use of VNAV over other modes even when it doesn't really make a lot of sense. One exception to this rule is what they call the immediate level-off procedure which is to be applied in such cases. It goes like this. 1. Engage altitude hold. This will command the autopilot to hold the current altitude independent of what's selected on the mode control panel. 2. Select the new altitude on the mode control panel, the MCP. Number three, the pilot not flying has to verbally confirm the new selection. Number four, select level change. This will command an idle descent or full thrust cr- climb to the new altitude. Now, bearing all of that in mind, something about VNAV on the 737 during descent. VNAB will command a path descent, meaning the pitch will not control the airspeed, but a a flight management computer calculated path, an FMC calculated path, which is computed as a function of the cost index, not necessarily 1000 feet per minute, as mentioned by someone, as long as the airspeed is above target speed needed to keep that path in minus 10 knots. No engine thrust is added, so it will be an idle descent, I suspect that in those 600 feet that the aircraft lost, it was just enough for the engines to spool down to idle. Pushing altitude hold at such a high flight level, especially on a long Canary Island uh, Islands flight, uh, where the airplane is quite heavy due to the extra fuel, bags, and passengers, might leave the airplane on a low-energy situation. I'm only speculating But perhaps the crew saw the need to manually add power and instinctively disconnected the autopilot and auto throttles, as they've done so many times for approach and landing. Given that airline pilots typically don't operate in that part of the envelope, some over-control occurred. I believe the pilots had to choose one of the options. Number one, not following the standard operating procedure. The second, risking a level bust. And then the third, possibly over-control. It's a difficult situation. I agree with Dana on this one. I much prefer to use the other modes for descent, as I find VNAV to be a bit difficult to work with at times. Best regards, Lefty Lewis. Well, there you go, Dana. A couple times he said you were right. That's got to make you feel pretty good.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I just have to get the phone out of the pocket and unmute. Um, yeah, that makes me feel good actually. Thank you.
4: <laughs> at
3: we'll least have, I'm we'll... writing about something for a change.
1: <laughs> uh, you're right. Almost all the time.
3: Yeah, I'm, or at I'm least brain, half I'm the time. Brain, yeah, at least half the time. <laughs> I, I'm trying to shoot for that 50% average. Yeah,
1: that's what we're what all else, shooting for here.
3: What else can I ask for? You, know? you like the background the ambience of all the people in Germany?
1: Yeah, that's great.
3: Adds, adds a little bit to
1: the show. No, yeah, okay. you know, a lot of people listen to the show to see what it's like to live the life of an airline pilot, and we're actually oh, well, getting to. Uh, a little bit farther, but we all things. <laughs> <laughs> on the ground uh, agent shouting at you. No, it was
3: actually
1: a customer <laughs> It's something with combined. a with a very thick Southern accent. <laughs> yeah, I
3: think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, so it's cool.
3: Yeah, that's uh, thank you. Thank you for that uh, feedback, and thank you for agreeing with me. That feels uh, feels pretty good.
1: And I also agree. Um, I hardly ever. Well, I mean, I, I use VNEV in the appropriate places and times, but uh, I I don't uh, use it a heck of a lot. Uh, not the I don't do it the way that they're training the new guys to use it. But um, anyway, you know that's part of being a pilot, right? Uh, you have these tools, and uh, you use them to the best. Uh, you put the, you, you deploy them or use them the best you can.
3: Well, it's was about early in the show, kind of, when we we're talking about difference between uh, fly-by-wire and fly-by-cable. I mean, it all comes down to the individual pilot, how they want to fly the airplane, how smoothly they operate it. It's mm-hmm. really what it is. So,
1: yep, choices. All about choices. Life. Correct. All right. Thank you, Lefty, for uh, putting your two cents in uh, toward uh, that particular incident on Ryanair. Uh, All right, Uh, continuing on, 15 Vaughn, thanks for the comprehensive answer to my query on the allocation of pilot duties in episode 308. I did not anticipate the lengthy rant from Captain Dana on problems that he had experienced on a recent trip prior to that episode, but it was a good illustration of the impact that poor decision-making by a captain can have on a first officer. I just wanted to add my thanks to those of others for the excellent crew log from Captain Nick concerning the poor weather preparations prior to recent departure from Boston. Captain Nick's detailed account gave me an insight into the careful planning and procedures that are necessary prior to departing in extreme weather. Having to make difficult decisions in deteriorating conditions with the pressure and constraint of time increases my admiration for the professionalism of airline crews. I'm really enjoying the podcast, so thank you and all the APG crew for continuing to provide entertaining and informative programs for the community. Keep up the good work, and if you and the crew are revisiting Farnborough this year, I will look forward to a meetup. Thanks again, Vaughn Turney from Ascot, UK. And he says, uh, aka, also known as AAA which stands for Aging Av Geek from ASCOT.
2: Uh, there you go. Uh, did you know that ASCOT was uh, one of the Royal Air Force's call signs for their long-range transport aircraft? No, I did not. So if you hear an ASCOT flying around, that'll be a Royal Air Force aircraft.
1: Now, uh, a piece of clothing um, that some people sometimes wear around their neckline is called an ascot. Does it have anything to do with this town and its name?
2: It may well do uh, have something to do with ascot races. Um, you're talking about a cravat, but uh, well, an no, ascot may be okay. another
1: name for it or another way to wear we it. We call them ascots, I think. All right. Let okay. me to do a quick search in the book of knowledge.
2: Uh, Neville uh, writes, ascot equals posh. Oh, the uh, Spice Girls? <laughs> uh and posh uh, does not name mean port out starboard
1: home so i'll just uh, make sure that people know that
3: hey jeff how do you even know about space girls
1: uh because i have a daughter who is 30 years old <laughs> and when she was uh uh pre-teen or whatever, whatever wow what's that noise <laughs> i'm sure i want to know um Let's the the see. Aqu- now, okay. <laughs> <laughs> pretty close. Uh, uh, okay, Well, uh, probably the, the the cockpit of the MD88. <laughs> 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 Same difference. Gets a little messy in there. Uh, an ascot tie or ascot or hanker tie is a neck band with wide pointed wings, traditionally made of pale gray patterned silk, and it's a formal tie. Uh, let's see. Does it say where this came from? it's a it descended from the earlier type of cravat widespread in the early 19th century most notably during the age of beau brummel made of heavily starched linen and elaborately tied around the neck okay i'm looking for oh the okay here we go the royal ascot race meeting at the ascot racecourse gave uh, the ascot its go. name
2: i was trying or, them. yes came from the races Excellent. Because they all dress up in uh, their gray toppers and uh, gray, uh, I'm not quite sure if they're gray, but they usually wear morning coats and uh, and these lovely gray cravats with
1: a pin through. But uh, they're the fancy people. Oh, yes. Like all the people that you live around in. Oh, if only. No. Your uh, sprawling country estate. And yeah, the In the, uh, in, in the yes. English country land i don't know country i don't know land. where i'm going with that <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep that's the place yeah. english
1: that's country it. land <laughs> just <laughs> rolls up the tongue not okay uh, continuing on james uh let's see hi jeff and the crew james devoy here native of prestwick scotland uh, currently residing in Dunwoody, Atlanta.
2: Well, I never. Presswick was where I uh, did my commercial instrument rating, my first one that I had to pay for myself
1: before I became, uh, uh, joined Acme Red. Oh, interesting. Uh, he's currently residing in Dunwoody, Atlanta, uh, Georgia, for a wee while. I'm a short-time private Pilot license holder, passed my EASA UK private in September 2016 in Poznan, Poland. Is that the Poznan, one you would say? I never heard of that place. I hadn't either. Uh, uh, long story, long story, why there? But mainly to do with UK weather, lack of training aircraft, and my ATC not allowing circuits on the few good weather days due to loads of you commercial guys using Prestwick for circuits in their shiny new Dreamliners. <laughs> Anyway, I now have around 130 hours and currently flying a rental PA 28 out of PDK, uh, I believe, just down the road from Captain Jeff. Yeah. Well, I never. Excellent PDK. In fact, I just flew in and out of there about a couple of weeks ago with uh, with Stephen Ivan. Ah, uh, yes, Chris. Uh, it's been an interesting experience. So many small differences in VFR flying in USA compared to Europe.
4: Light engine. Higher,
1: left engine. Uh-oh, Dana's having a the time there. Hang on to it, Dana. You can do it. Just do the procedures. Put it down. Declare an emergency. Mayday, mayday, mayday. That was the... Uh, his do you baby, actually get uh, a bitching bessie on that one? That's amazing. Oh, yeah.
2: We don't get You know, the Betty. airplane's
1: not as ancient as you think it is. It's, it's actually... One of the
2: cabin crew
1: has to come in it and, has, and do that. It has yeah, EFIS. It has uh, an FMC. It has uh, uh, ICAS. <laughs>
2: we going to get the whole nine yards
1: now. I think so. Now we need to hear overspeed. Apparently, come not. on, overspeed.
2: I'm just trying to work out how He's doing this with his microphone turned off.
1: I don't know. Okay, uh, let's see. Where were we? I um...
3: think the great, the great cell services here at the airport. It's unbelievable. If you can oh, hear me, yeah.
1: Cell service is horrible uh, because there are so many people using the limited amount of bandwidth available, um, you know, in the middle of the night, believe it or not, is really great. <laughs> Most of us aren't flying at the Atlanta International Airport in the middle of the night, at least not me. Um, Let's see. Uh, It's been an interesting experience. So many small differences in VFR flying in the United States compared to Europe. I used the reciprocal arrangement between the FAA and the CAA to obtain a U.S. airman's certificate that took nearly six months. And I've heard stories of it taking nearly a year. One of the requirements is that you have to visit in person a U.S. flight standards district office. That was reasonably easy for me as I was in the U.S. when I needed to make the visit. If you're in the UK, it would be a journey over the pond for literally a two-minute interview. Interestingly, before I obtained the license, which, by the way, took another two months after the interview to arrive in the mail, I struggled to be able to fly in the USA without an instructor. I could not rent to as with my... I could not rent to as with my...
2: I think just not rent as,
1: as with my UK EOS license, I couldn't obtain renter's insurance. Okay. Thank you. So I had to pay for an instructor to sit with me until the license came through. Now that wasn't a bad thing. I had the foresight anyway, to book three hours from familiarization with an instructor. So thankfully I did. So many things were different. First was the language on paper. We all speak English, but with my Scottish accent and the Georgia controllers accents, It was as if we were speaking two totally different languages. I now have about 20 hours in the USA, and it's a lot better now. The pace of transmissions is also frantic. The U.S. controllers fire out instructions like a machine gun. Pauses seem non-existent. Very different from the U.K. I have lost count of the number of times I've asked for instructions to be repeated. I do feel that is my my bad, though. After all, I am the foreigner. Other issues are the lack of QFE. American airports seem to only use QNH, meaning a quick mental calculation has to be done to calculate the actual aerodrome circuit. Oops, pattern height. Radio frequencies often drop the initial one, so 122.45 becomes 22.45. The K is also dropped from the four-digit identifier, so Kilo Papa Delta Kilo simply is PDK. The 45-degree join is also something new to a UK pilot. Well, it certainly wasn't something I'd ever been taught. Moving on a bit, the new license arrived, and I could now obtain renter's insurance. I was also now free to fly without my instructor. I believe I had more nerves about doing that than I did in my first solo. Anyway, probably taken up enough of your time today. If you feel that my adventures in the USA may be of interest... I would be delighted to share some of the stories. Who would love to hear the, the audio um, description of some of these stories. Uh, James, always great to hear a Scottish accent, as long as we can understand what you're saying. Um, so if it's, if it's too thick, then, yeah, stick to writing, I guess. Um, let's see. Lastly, I would love a shout-out to my fellow aviators in the Peachtree, PDG, or Atlanta area. Who would be happy to meet up and share some flying with me? Now I wonder if he means PDK, PDG. I don't know what PDG stands for. PDK. I'm thinking. Anyway, uh, my rental company is great. I would recommend them, but it's not like a UK flying club. There's not much. uh, There's not a bunch of old boys who meet up and talk aviation, share flights, and $100 hamburger trips. Happy for them to email me directly. And I'll put his email address in the show notes if you want to contact. Don't read out the last sentence, Jeff. Okay. Thanks. And um, uh, and thank you very much for, because I was going to read it. <laughs> no,
2: I'm joking. You could read out the last
1: sentence. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. A, a little a little sore about this? Uh, yeah, just a little. He goes, oh, and finally, Captain Nick, did you enjoy the rugby on Saturday, February 24th? Apparently not. Apparently not. <laughs> least said
2: about that, the better.
1: okay uh so anyway we'll put uh james's um email address in the show notes since he gave us permission to do so or you can contact him and james uh we'll certainly uh well i'm sure you're you're tuned into uh where we are on social media twitter facebook etc as far as uh when we might have any meetups in the uh, near future here in atlanta so uh just keep uh Keep logged into that and keep listening to the show and uh, we'll let you know. It'd be great. It'd be a great pleasure to meet you in person. Oh, so let's see. Is there are probably some stuff in here that we want to, uh, well, there's answer
2: left or... I've got to, uh, on my sheet here.
1: Yeah. Well, 18, I think Jim, I think that, uh, after that we can go ahead and delve into, uh, some other feedback. How long have we been going here? Let's see. Um, 254 so
2: we're not doing badly yeah.
1: yeah actually this might be perfect yeah so let's uh finish the show today with uh this feedback from jim howard now jim usually sends us audio um but um apparently let's see he said something about this in his um feedback maybe i erased that but i guess he was he was looking for some kind of a connector that um that he usually uses to record his great audio feedback. But um, since he couldn't find it, he had to type it out for us instead. He says um, on what I think, and he calls himself just a navigator. That's the Jim Howard here on what I think is the most recent podcast. A listener asked if there was a system to combine airborne radar from different airplanes. In fact, there is one in the works it's, uh, and it gives us a link to uh, Honeywell. Honeywell thinks this connected system will be a great help to aircraft flying long overwater routes, since there's little or no ground-based radar out there over the oceans. I really enjoyed Captain Nick's plain tale concerning his F four training. His experience was pretty similar to mine, except mine had more vomit. <laughs> because, <laughs> but I was just a navigator. <laughs> uh, oh
2: dear! Some some people I have great admiration for them uh, persist in a, an aviation career even though they're dreadfully airsick, um, and because it, it's really tough, you know. If you uh, if you vomit even on a on a simple and gentle trip, we had a, a navigator on my a old squadron that just hurled all the time. In the end, they sent him off to uh, the doctors at Farnborough where he was desensitized. And uh, it more
1: or less cured him, but it takes some effort to get over that. What the, what does that involve, desensitization? Uh, yeah, well,
2: they would, because um, after a while, uh, the movement and the vomiting become um, associated in your brain. So that even when you're not being moved around enough to really warrant being sick, you're just sick anyway, because you're airborne, you're in that environment. And uh, it's just something your body is now used to doing. So mm-hmm. what they did was that they put him first of all just in a uh, a, four, a three action three axis sorry uh, closed box, and they'd spin him around in the dark until he started feeling queasy, and they'd stop, let him out. And, and then they'd do it again and again and again. And it took ages. Uh, and each time getting him to the point where he was starting to feel queasy, but not letting him vomit to try and work him out of that. And then the second half of the training was actually flying him with a, uh, a, a qualified doctor pilot. In a uh, hunter, two seat hunter, uh, and who would stunt and bunt him, um, you know, aerobatics and the like, until again, he started to feel queasy. Then they'd, they'd straighten level, sort him out, and teach him some exercises to, you know, straighten his head. And uh, he, he got over it. So it was good.
1: Well, that makes it. You know, it used to be um, when we first started getting these smartphones, I could not, if I were in something that was moving, like a bus or a car. And, you know, not driving, of course, but uh, as a passenger and looking at the small little smartphone screen and doing things, I, I kind of felt a little queasy and it took some time. I guess over time I became desensitized to this miss um, connection between what my body was, the this, the messages that my body was sending to my brain that hey, I'm moving, but the message that my eyes were sending to the brain were saying, no, I'm not. And, you know, causing that sickness reaction. Um, not, not really, I wasn't vomiting or anything, but, it, you know, it was like I, I had to put my phone down and look outside a bit, you know, to get a to feel better. And yep. now yep. it's like I can do it all the time. I guess I've been desensitized
2: yeah that that and possibly the picture on your phone if you've got a, a more recent one has is, is a bit better uh, yeah. i used to find it in the yeah. uh, my early 340 simulators particularly taxing on the ground because the picture uh, when it you it had a, a large rate of um horizontal movement used to lag slightly behind the simulator uh you'd feel completely disconnected because you what you're seeing is not what you're feeling it's it, and you go, whoa, it used to make me disorientated. Didn't feel sick, but I just went, oh, it just not, does not look right. I don't feel, you know, mm-hmm. it makes me feel weird. Uh, it's better now with the, uh, you know, modern uh, visuals, which are much sharper and uh, faster. But uh, in the old days, they were, it was a real pain. And it was only just really while taxiing around and lining up. Once you're airborne, the aircraft movement was slow enough for the simulator to sort of keep in sync with.
1: That's interesting. Uh, every time I go into the sim, and maybe it's just a, a holdover from the earlier days, and the technology wasn't as as good as far as the visual display that we have. Um, but every time the guy or gal operating the sim uh, like takes us from one position to another, or you know, like from one snapshot to another, they always, you know, watch your eyes, watch your eyes, or look away, or whatever, I'm thinking, and it never bothered me, but... I guess it bothers some people.
2: Yeah, i i used to I used to look down or close my eyes, uh, and partly because you've now got to completely reorientate yourself, because you do get very absorbed in the simulator, and your your spatial awareness and your situational awareness have you in one spot. And then they freeze you and say, "Right, we're just going to zip you back now. We'll put you on ten miles finals, and we need to do a slightly different version of what you've just flown." And all of a sudden, you've got to completely reorientate your body. It's it's. Mm-hmm. I find it horrid. Yeah, covered.
1: it, it um, yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll include a link to uh, that that uh, Jim sent us uh, regarding Honeywell's connected radar. And now this was um, dated the twenty sixth of July, twenty sixteen, and it said that the Honeywell Weather Information Service is all about delivering the right information to pilots and dispatchers at the right time now we're working on adding even more capabilities to our award-winning weather app by integrating and sharing weather conditions detected by other aircraft in flight and uh, somewhere in here it's, i guess they're calling it the uh, it's enabled by honeywell's most advanced into view rdr-4000 3d weather radar system that flies on leading commercial airliners When connected radar becomes operational, Honeywell will be able to download weather hazard data from all participating into view-equipped aircraft, combine it with multiple other inputs, and make it immediately available to pilots and dispatchers using the Weather Information Service app. And they said they expect it to be operational in early, early 2017. Cool. Now, I, no, it's now early 2018. I'm not sure <laughs> if this is actually <laughs> operational yet or not. Maybe if you're listening to the show and you are flying a more modern airplane, perhaps uh, I would imagine this will probably be in use in um, the uh, corporate world before it is in the airline world, I'm guessing. So if you're listening to the show, you happen to fly an airplane that uses the Honeywell Weather Systems RDR-4000 3D weather radar system. Send us some feedback. Let us know how that, you know, if it actually is in use now and how it's working out. That'd be interesting to to hear.
2: Mm, Absolutely. I I mean, it must be pretty sophisticated because you can imagine if someone stuck some ground returns in there, how uh, that might uh, confuse the system. But if it's a, a very sophisticated 3D radar, then that's unlikely to happen. It's likely to be able to
1: filter out that sort of thing. Yeah. That'd be awesome to have that you know I don't know if you uh, your news casts in the UK have some of these sophisticated radar um, displays that they show you on the tube where uh, you you can see the, the the storm and then they kind of turn it around and you can actually see like a cross section of the storm and, and present it in a three-dimensional way and I'm thinking man that would be really handy to have in an airplane.
2: Oh, it would. No, I, I we don't tend to see that, certainly not on, on the TV regularly, but you guys suffer from a lot more weather right. phenomena, phenomena, phenomena that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that really necessitates that form of technology so that you can predict uh, twisters and uh, uh, yep. all the rest of the horrible things that happen in America.
1: <laughs> amongst the many, many horrible things that happens in America. Well, thank you. With that, with that. what a great note to end the show on.
2: <laughs> My second favorite country,
1: folks. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so uh, let's see. If you want to learn more about the show, we have this website, airlinepilotguy.com. You may have heard of it uh, there. Uh, let's see. I'm going to dial it up right now because sometimes I forget to uh, – Mention all the great things that are going on at the site managed by a rush like the, um, like the plain tales page Well, okay, <laughs> I'm getting closer and, and I've I'm going to up with you Jeff Have you okay? Yeah, well, I think pictures. I'm in November of 2017 or whatever. So getting well, pretty I'm close about five or six behind you Okay, excellent. Well, it's gonna be so great because we're building this thing up so much. Anyway, soon you'll go to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website and you'll see uh, as one of the uh, items on the uh, top menu, uh, the Plane Tales page. But right now you can uh, hit the podcasts and listen to the shows. You can go to APG Live. Um, Many people uh, access the uh, live show via that link. Uh, You can learn about the crew, APG crew, uh, learn about the Coffee Fund, social media, APG Store. You can contact us through the uh, website as well. And find Jeff. If you're interested to see where I'm flying and uh, uh, calendar and that kind of thing, that's where you can find that. And uh, so much more, I'm sure, in the future. So, uh, again, thank you, Arash, for, for managing that site for us. And it's, it happens to be running very, very snappy now. So whatever you did, it uh, has fixed the sluggishness and uh, latency we used to have with the site. So, that's awesome, and uh, if you happen to have a personal computer, a tiny, you know, like a smartphone, a tablet, uh, we have app an app for that. Uh, by going to the Apple App Store or the Google Google Play Store, you can download the Airline Pilot Guy app, where and it's free, and there's no advertising on it, and you can do much of what you can do on the uh, website, uh, on the uh, on the social. I mean, uh, the smartphone apps and social media captain nick
2: okay we're on facebook uh, at www.facebook.com uh, yeah, forward slash airline pilot guy and if you want to catch us on twitter then uh, we just need to have at apg crew appended to your message and uh, we'll see that
1: exactly and we've mentioned it many times on today's show slack And you should sign up for it. And this is how you can.
0: APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1. And I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1. And see you in Slack.
1: And finally, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Bye, everybody.
0: Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy.
4: Meet
1: Good day.
3: A good good pilot. Till I started APG, I opened doors for little old ladies.
0: I helped them to their seats. Airline pilot guy, I'm a flight attendant. Oh! Airline pilot guy, he can't
3: land in heavy oh I got no friends. I'm always flying. I just don't have the time. But I can land this old plane. I can land it just
0: fine. Airline, not a guy. I'm flying. Or policies of any airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior
4: episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It
2: ain't boring,
3: I ain't going.